What's good, devs? Did y'all catch Tim Sweeney out there low-key dropping the big news of what I joined Epic Games to work on? I'll link the interview in the show notes, but yes, the cat's out of the bag. We're making the Unreal Editor for Fortnite, a standalone editor to bring your vision to life in the Fortnite metaverse. Stay tuned for more news as the year goes on. In less exciting news, which pains me to admit, your boy caught the fucking vid. One night out in Capitol Hill, I speculated it was a bartender who was not masked up or someone in that bar. And after two years, two months, three Pfizer shots, the COVID got me. It took me down for a few nights. It really felt like a bad cold. The worst part about it was quarantining and not being able to cuddle with the, with the pack. I'm still testing positive a week later. The good thing is, keeping my distance, Catherine and Maui have not caught it. And I know many of you are going out, doing conferences, doing shows, and I don't blame y'all. I'm just encouraging you to be safe. Don't let your guard down and test yourselves often. Now, hit my music. On episode 32 of the Game Devs Podcast, Out of Play Area, I sit down with my old Midway Austin creative director, Kent Hudson, who was also nominated by Ben Rattan on episode 31. And we walk through his journey in the industry from his start at Ion Storm in Austin, Texas, working on Deus Ex Invisible War, onto his time at 2K Marin on Bioshock 2 and supporting on XCOM The Bureau Declassified, and even his time going indie to make the critically acclaimed The Novelist, all the way to where he is today at Brassline Entertainment as a design director. This interview was recorded earlier in February the 22nd, 2022, coming to you by way of Toronto, Canada, to the north. Please welcome Kent Hudson. Let's fall out. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. When I met you, all my other buddies, all the other full sale homies got interviewed by you, I believe on campus Mm -hmm. and through whatever forks in the road or alternate reality branches, I didn't get to meet you till I was already inside of Midway. And I knew you as creative director, Kent Hudson. Mm -hmm. Even to this day, I look at you and I'm like, yeah, that's a creative director through and through. He can sell whatever, talk about whatever, be super enthusiastic, super excited, just just build a church and, and sell the Bible, right? To be like, hey, guys, this is what we're doing at all costs. And, and are you with me? And it's like, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. I'm excited. Let's go build this shit. I don't think you can train that. You didn't learn it. It's part of your core DNA. You go to a creative director boot camp or something? <laughs> no. And like, it's funny. I was laughing when you were saying that because like in hindsight, I was not a good creative director. Like, like I, I did not know what I was doing. I was ambitious. You know, like I wanted to, you know, be creative and have more say in all those things, but I got promoted way too early. Like when they didn't have a creative director for the project and I was just like, what about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? I was just, you know, on Harvey about like, what about me? What about me? And I kept knocking at the door, I guess, you know, they didn't have anybody else. So like on one hand, it's kind of, you know, process of elimination, I guess. I didn't know what I was doing, man. It's, I look back at like early different companies 
And there's lots of stuff where like, you know, I was multiple companies in before I even knew what some jobs looked like. At Einstorm, we didn't have creative directors per se. Like on, on DX2, Harvey was, I believe his title was project director. Okay. And in hindsight, it wasn't like the traditional creative directors. I know it because he was for a long time. He was also the lead designer until Ricardo got promoted midway through the project. And so he was like very involved in the design piece of it. But I believe he also had some production duties and some business duties and some stuff that wasn't always just creative direction. So I never had a model for that role. That's not to bag on Harvey or anything. Harvey's great. He's, he got me in the industry, man. He hired me out of college. Like he's, yeah. you know, he's still my dude. I credit him for me getting in the industry, you know, him taking yeah. a chance on my ass. So absolutely, absolutely, yeah. man. I, man, I was freaking nobody. I, I didn't even have, I mean, you at least got to go to game school. I came up before there was game school. Like I have a political science degree. You asked if it was like, you know, in my bones or whatever. And I, I mean, I think it is because I've, I've always had a big mouth, I guess. Because <laughs> like, I remember in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a long time. I went to school because they say, gotta go to college, you know, like try to get the education. It opens up your opportunities or whatever. And I just kind of backed into being a political science major because I was like, oh, these classes, I can just like talk and get A's. I was like, you know, just because it's, it's, it's debate, it's theories, it's this, that, and the other, you know, and it's just very like interpersonal. Not that there's not theory and logic and stuff like that in political science. But I was just like, man, I can just talk and do debates and stuff like that and, mm -hmm. and get grades. And so I didn't want to be a politician. I just saw that as a, as a major I could do. Being a director in anything, I think that's a major hat you tend to wear, right? Is getting multiple disciplines on the same page, listening, adapting, mm -hmm. fighting for an idea or bending into an idea. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because I talked to a bunch of people doing this and not many come from a poli side background. And yet it is so useful now that I hear you talk about it. I mean, part of it is that because I was always a gamer, I always loved games. Mm. And like, I remember my freshman year of college was right when you could have a computer that was powerful enough. So I, I graduated high school in 79. I mean, on 97. What? 79? God damn, you a vampire? Yeah, exactly. I got to take a break in about 15 to get my blood infusion, by the way. <laughs> That's what you guys have in Canada, man. With all that ice, <laughs> you just have your, your, your blood bags just preserved. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just leave them on the back porch. Don't got to worry about for every winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. But I graduated in 97 from high school. You know, a couple of years after that was like, even my freshman year in college, I remember was when you could first kind of like download a, a level editor for Doom. Uh, and you could run on your own computer and you could start making levels. And so I started doing that. And then, you know, I got into like Quake 2 was out at the time. So I built levels there and then Soldier of Fortune and just like different games. And so I was, I was a hobbyist. Yeah. And I like worked on a couple of mods that never went anywhere with people just on the internet, like kind of early days of modding. And so I was doing political science because I was like, I can get A's doing this. But I was kind of like a hobby game maker or level maker, you know, level designer. How do you approach level layout? I can shortcut that question real quick because I'm not a good level designer. Amen. Me neither. Man. I, it's hilarious because I, you know, a few years after I got in the industry, I would look back at my levels that I built, even for my like application and my resume and stuff like that. If you would go through my levels, they were just like kind of like linear levels. It would be like the first room would be like a square with maybe like a desk. And then the next room would be a hexagon. And the next room would have stairs. And it was literally like each room was me learning a new tool in the editor. Yeah. But there was no thought to like going back and making it consistent or adding pacing or anything. Okay. It was just like, oh, here's the room where you learned about invisible triggers. Here's where you can pick up ammo. It was like so amateurish. Like it was bad. There was no player experience or anything. It was just like the process of learning the tools. So I was like never a great level designer. I guess I had a couple of good enough levels to get hired at Ionstorm. Were they looking at your portfolio then? So it's like, hey, yeah, yeah, what do you got? And they're like, yo, here's all the levels I've modded or built on mm -hmm. for Doom yeah. or Quake. To be fair to myself, I did have one. It's funny. 
people forgotten about this game, but Soldier of Fortune. I think Raven made it. It was on one of the one of the Quake engines. Raven was like a offshoot spinoff of ID, right? Yeah, they they were like a almost like a second party type deal. It was weird. They they were independent studio. They're up in Wisconsin. They're still there. Yeah, doing Call of Duty maps. Yeah, I think that's where the QA team was like trying to unionize, right? Oh, yeah. I think that's, that's Raven, isn't it? Dude, union unions are happening. Sounds that way. They're coming. They're coming. Yeah. In game development. Holy shit. <laughs> People have been talking about it since I got in the industry, man. But I made I made a good map in Soldier of Fortune. And it was legit good. When I was in high school, I used to love this movie called Where Eagles Dare, which is like this World War II movie with Clint Eastwood. And it had this thing with like a action scenes on this, like not a ski lift, but you know, like a cable car that goes like up to a castle on a cliff. Okay. So I was like, I can make a cable car that goes up to a castle on the cliff. So you had to like do all this stuff at the bottom of the cliff. Then you could unlock the cable car and ride it up. And it was like a, a mover that like really you could get in. The door would open and close. And you'd go oh, up, you get up and there's the castle. You'd get the key, you'd get out, you know, da, da, da. So like I actually made like one level that's like, huh, this guy might know what he's doing. It was at least technically impressive. It was probably not experientially very good. But that one was decent. That's a big thing that I want people to keep in mind, right? It's the spatial pacing is one thing, mm -hmm. but showing that you can script together logic and make mm -hmm. triggers a thing and, and show sequences that lead from one section to a level to another section of the level. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of what we do when we break in, right? So showing that you yeah. can do that and hit the ground running is already enticing enough. So that's awesome. Yeah. So, so I sent them that. I'm like, this was back in the day. Like, I still have the CD, actually. I found it in my closet. Cause oh. I don't throw any way away. I'm, I'm like a pack rat. I, my cause is full of PC games from like the late nineties. It's amazing. I literally like took my resume and my cover letter, printed them out on a printer at college. You could buy these like sticker label things that were mm -hmm. on like an eight by 11 piece of paper that had like space for two jewel case covers. Yeah. And so I like made a jewel case cover that had like the Deus Ex logo and like my name on it and put it on and I burned my levels to a CD. And I took my printed resume and printed cover letter and that CD and a little like jewel case and put it in a bubble wrap, a bubble mailer, and mailed it to Austin, Texas from North Carolina. Like, that's how I applied. Yeah. Like, it wasn't even, it was barely online. Like, I would email with those dudes, but I, I did my interviews on a phone call and mailed them my stuff. That's a hell of a portfolio or a business card, right? Like, no, what beats that? You know, like, oh, yeah, a business <laughs> card. Because nobody had websites back then, right? Maybe there was some, right. I talked to a few animators that had their demo reels on VHS, uh -huh. right? And so that was oh, kind of wow. mind-blowing. <laughs> but I love it. Instead of sending out, I don't know, a piece of paper, here's mm -hmm. a CD, here's my design sensibilities. You got to be excited. I would imagine me being whatever designer at a studio, checking the mail and getting this. Mm -hmm. and be like, oh shit, yo guys, let's pop this in. <laughs> yo, let's check this out. Oh man, I, I got like two good stories about that. One of them is, because I actually did have a website at my, at my college. Okay. It's pretty early internet, right? Like this was 97, 98. What was the college? Uh, Wake Forest University. Oh, snap. Tim, Timmy's. Winston-Salem. Yeah, Timmy D. I Good missed him by me. one year. I was a yeah. freshman the year after you graduated. You're tall, man. You got, you got the height. You should be dunking That's on true. fools. <laughs> I did dunk at the age of 36. That was what? the latest I could dunk. Man, you my hero. You my hero, Ken. I kept telling <laughs> myself just... like... All right, this is the year I'm going to dunk. This is the year. And then now it's like. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm 36'4". So like, you know, that, that gives me a leg up. And I hadn't played ball in like five years before that. I guarantee you there's like a list of no more than 40 game developers who could dunk. That's, I don't that's think some... I can now. I'm older <laughs> now. And it was very much like I tried like 25, 30 times. And I got it. It was like, it was like off one with one. It, it wasn't anything fancy. It was like just over the rim, Yo. just over the rim, you know, got two knuckles Hell on the rim. Yeah. So whatever. And it's funny because the next day my left calf was like cramping. It was so sore. <laughs> Put everything you had into that sucker. 
I did. <laughs> my wife was just sitting on the side of the court being like, can we go now? And I'm like, I almost got it. I almost got it. <laughs> uh, oh, that's it was, wonderful. 36. It wasn't like a dunk it traffic in a game or whatever. It was just me on the court. But we had websites in college. Every student got, you know, like 20 megabytes of internet yeah. space or whatever that you could use. And so I was like obsessed. I was like, oh my God. So I made a website that had a whole bunch of stuff about movies that I liked and music that I liked. I had a page called Song of the Day where every day I would rip like a crappy MP3 of something I liked and put it up and talk about why. It was like an early blog, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I also had this thing that was basically a blog. It was called like Thought of the Day. And every day I would just post some shit, like, like just whatever I was thinking about, whatever it was. And this one time on April Fool's, I made this big post about how women belong in the kitchen. They shouldn't even be able to go to college. They should know where they fit in society, this whole thing. And it was like deadpan the whole way through. Yeah. And the very last line I said, and before you get mad at me, just think about what today is. Because it was April 1st. It was like a whole April Fool, like an internet April Fool's joke, right? Yeah. Except when they were researching me at IonStorm, they found uh, that post and didn't realize it, it was an April Fool's joke. Uh, and so Harvey was like, we almost didn't interview you. And I was like, why not? And he's like, oh, we saw that post and we didn't realize it was a joke. So we thought you were just this super misogynistic, like totally toxic guy. And I was like, holy crap. That's where I learned that like, even if something's a joke and you say it's a joke, you still got to uh, be careful because I was like, whoa. Dude, yeah, it was, it was today, not good. Imagine today, like the way culture or media is quick to just take snippets and little screenshots, right? Oh, and yeah. Just, and just cut out that dead. last little line. I would be dead. I would be dead. Wow. Without that line and the fact that it was on April 1st, I, it almost screwed me up anyway. I was like, holy crap. But the other thing is, is that like, this was in the days of ICQ. And so once I got the job, I got the job halfway through my senior year. So I was like, I'm still going to graduate before I come. Like, you know, I'm not going to drop out three months early. I, you know, put in the time. I'm going to get my diploma. And so... I would like ICQ with them to be like, yo, because I knew they were working on DX2. I didn't know much about yeah. it. They wouldn't see me like design docs. Who's like, look, we can't let that out of the network. I was like, I get it. But I was like always bugging them. Like, oh yeah, what's up? We're doing the da, 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 da. That's cool. Because I was excited, man. I had like of three course. months. I was like, I'm going to work at Ironstorm, but I was still in college. And you knew the game you were going to work on. Yeah. And so I was just like blowing them up all the time. On ICQ. And like by the time I got there, like I found out that they were like, Oh, guy, the new guy is on ICQ again. Who's he bugging today? Like, I, I was like a joke around the office. I was so eager, man. I was so enthusiastic. That formula is so vital for games, right? Like, you have the grizzled veterans that have been uh -huh. doing the thing for a while and yep. are not as excited. And it's important to keep that fresh stream of youthful exuberance and excitement, right? Like, 100%. Guys, check this out. Oh, look at this. Hey, I got to show you this. And just asking all these questions. Mm -hmm. it, it's a great formula for success, I feel like. Like, whatever yep. time you feel you got to spend catering to that or whatever, I think it pays dividends in the long run. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I, to I mean, that was a, I mean, we did that at Midway, right? Like, you saw that. Like, how many, yeah. how many wholesalers did we pull in, man? Fuck, man, you put, it, it was, I, I want to say it was like 12 of us at least, man, 12 to 15 of us. It was a bunch. It was Dude. a bunch. And, and I'm eternally grateful, man, that what a, what a, <laughs> what a class. That's the thing, man. You look and see what people have gone and done since then, man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People are all over. I can go down the list, but you are, you already know where we at, what we're doing. That's true. They'll each have to come on and tell their story if they haven't already. I got a handful. One day I want to get to a point where I could do this live in a studio or some shit like that and just have like a round table that'd be fun you better schedule it for like five hours on a weekend yeah. you were at ion storm you just got in mm -hmm. you're bugging everybody externally now you're on site uh, mm -hmm. does anything change it was it a big move yeah i was in north carolina maybe like 
five days or a week after uh, graduation, I put myself in a U-Haul and just like drove to Texas. By yourself, yeah. Yeah. And I was, I mean, you know, I'd like, I'd gone to college in the same state that my family lived in. So like, you know, I've been two hours from home, but not like super far. Mm-hmm. And so then it was like, yeah, just throw my stuff in and I'm 22 years old. And I was like, going to Texas, that was kind of it. It was cool. Like, that's where I wanted to work. Like I like Deus Ex changed my life when it came out in the summer between my junior and senior year. I was like, whoa, I was like, I didn't know I had games were a hobby. And I was like, whoa, games could be a thing. Like I was like, I didn't realize games could be like this. That was the birth or like, I guess kind of a one generation removed of what the action RPG genre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the heyday of the immersive sim. I mean, I sound immersive like an old man sim. saying that, but like, you know, <laughs> Thief, System Shock 2, Deus Ex, those games, I mean, they were, they were all time. And so, yeah, so I, I got there and I was just, I was just so psyched to be there. I, mean, I didn't know anything about being an adult mm-hmm. and I was just a 22 year old figuring out. Gamer turned game developer. Yeah, exactly. I got me an apartment that, I mean, it's probably like any 22 year old's apartment. Just like, I would just take my clothes out of the dryer and just <laughs> put them in the clean coast pile on the floor. Like I wouldn't, I didn't have any furniture. Like I had a bed that was just on the box springs or whatever. And I like, you know, I didn't have like a chest of drawers or just, any drawers to put shit in. So it was just like, I take the clean clothes and there's a clean clothes pile on the floor. They're clean. They're not folded or anything. It's just in a pile. And then I would go, you know, pick it, pick out what shirt I want to wear that day. And they were clean. That's what I could say about them. Which was saying a lot back in those days, the gamer hygiene. I definitely worked with people who I won't, who I won't name, who definitely you'd smell them before you saw them when they came to work. So to put, to put a time frame on it, this was what, early 2000s? 2001 is when I started there. June okay. of 2001. All right. Summertime. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Summertime in Texas. All right. So you come Texas. in and, and what, you know, you hit the ground running. They, they just throw you right into the tool set. Yep. You even know what you're going to be doing. What's your title? What's your role? Yeah, I was a level designer. So I got hired as a level designer. Back then, like game designer wasn't even a thing. It was mm-hmm. like level designers would do game design and level design. Some programmers would also do game design stuff. And it was just kind of like. The teams were smaller, man. Like, uh, we, we thought to make, to make DX2, at one point we had gotten up to like, I think 50 people. We were like, holy crap, this is the biggest game development team I've ever heard of. You know, it's like, <laughs> fi- it's like 50 people. Ugh. And so, yeah, so I was a level designer and was not good at the sort of geometry, architectural space flow side of it. Like I would, and I was, and some of it was just me being stupid and stubborn. And some of it was just like, I just, wasn't very good at it, but what I was good at was sort of the logic and scripting piece of it. Probably one of the best things that ever happened to me was a programmer, this guy named Alex Duran, who was a really smart programmer on our team. He rewrote the object system for Unreal and created a whole new sort of inheritance-based, object-oriented data structure for the game where instead of being like, you know, the old... Like it's this, I'm talking Unreal 1, man. It's like, so mm-hmm. there was a real inheritance. Everything had to be like a code class if you want to make any new object. And all of a sudden you could start deriving things. And we had a cool scripting system that I believe was made by a guy named Matt Bear. And he created a really nice visual scripting system instead of just having to use Unreal Script, which is basically just like, I think Java um, yeah. or, or, or some sort of web style language. And so between those two things and, and those two things talk to each other, they realized they needed, like, if we're going to start keeping more and more of our sort of, gameplay objects, weapons, characters, pickups, all that stuff. In data, they were like, we need somebody to manage all this data. And so they were looking for someone who would like take over game data management. And 
I volunteered because I volunteered for anything. And I was like, you know, I was just like, I want more. Give me more. I want to do more. You know, I was hungry, you know, like really, really hungry. And so I just said, I'll do it, you know? And, and once I got into it, I started experimenting and being like, okay, I could, it's not that hard to maintain this stuff, but like, this is really powerful. And so I started like, I just started making stuff. I realized that like, I could derive a new class in data without having to talk to a programmer. And this all sounds so normal now, because this is how, this is just how engines work now. But like back then. Engines didn't work this way. Like a designer could sit at his desk and be like, derive this. And I got the script I can attach to it. And the script can reference itself. So the script can say, when such and such event happens to me, then do this. And I've got this list of actions. It was a very like, if then type of scripting system. Yeah. But man, I, I, once I realized that I was like, holy crap, it like opened up these doors. And instead of just doing the, the maintenance side of it, I would just start making stuff for the game. Like people, we'd be doing a level review or whatever. And people would be like, oh man, I wish we had like, I wish we had a door that worked like this. Or like, oh, what if we had like a trap like that or whatever? And I was like, I can make it. And I was just go back to my desk and just make it like 20 minutes later, like here's, here's your thing you asked for, just sync to this change list or whatever. And like used to, that be like, you know, days you'd have to wait for a program or whatever. Yeah. And I just started making stuff. Like my, one of my favorite um, memories is that um, in DX2, there's four or five, maybe six unique weapons that are hidden in the game. And, and they're like really cool weapons. Like one of them's like, there's one called like the Red Greasel Hunter, which was like a, a gun that had like a red like spotlight on it, like flashlight scope looking thing on it that did like a ton of damage. And you could only find it one place in the game. It was like in some little sewer or something like that, like back around the edge. You had to crawl through a thing and there's this one gun there. And there's like five or six of these unique weapons that like players found. It wasn't even, I don't even think of the strategy guide. It's like kind of a cool Easter egg for people, but they were really cool weapons. And where that came from was one day we were at lunch and we were in the corner booth at Chewy's, which is, I mean, you oh know Chewy's. Oh my gosh. You know Chewy's. Oh, you I was getting ready back. to explain it to you. And I was like, oh, you know Chewy's. Dude. And so it was like me, Steve, Harvey, Ricardo, and, and Monty, uh, just the design crew. And we were sitting in the corner booth at Chewy's. This is like four months before we shipped the game. Like this was like getting into crunch time. And we just got talking. They're like, you know what's cool in RPGs is when there's like unique weapons and like cool stuff you can find. It's like da 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 da. Like, man, I wish we had stuff like that. But you know, we just have the same weapons everywhere. And we started riffing on ideas for weapons and we got back from lunch and I had checked all those weapons into the game by the time I left that night because we had this system. I was just like, oh, I can derive a pistol off of our base pistol, change this color parameter, tweak the damage, change the way that the clip works and did it and just all in data. So like, I just found a real love for that kind of stuff. And there were so many parts of that game. There was just, just stuff that was just like experimenting with those new tools that those programmers had made us. So by the end of the project, I wasn't doing any like level design stuff in terms of like geography and architecture and stuff like that. I was doing tons of scripting. I ended up scripting yeah. half the game because I was very good at scripting and triggers and events and stuff like that. I learned to have like a very sort of logical brain in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I did a ton of that. And then I was just making stuff, man. I like so much stuff in that game was just crap that, you know, I made Put it my together. desk. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about those design lunches, it hits me all up in the heartstrings because so many great game ideas come from the team just going out mm-hmm. to lunch or the team going out to the bar or just hanging out. And and yep. you're you're around people that are making shit and you start riffing and that's mm-hmm. how cool things emerge in the game. And I kind of miss Absolutely. that, right? In this whole work yeah. from home pandemic situation where everything yeah. has to be scheduled and everybody's busy and the calendars are blocked and you don't really have these kind of low stakes in a car on the way to a place or you see something on the table and you're like yo why is that green and like yo what if our thing was green and it you know it just yeah missed that yeah we try to do that with huddles sometimes with slack huddles because those Mm -hmm. are a little bit like that but yeah you're right you kind of leave it on in the background and people are free to come and go 
Yeah. Into yeah. A huddle. But I mean, like, it's weird because like you, when I see a huddle, I often don't jump in because I'm like, oh, I'm in the middle of something or like, you know, I'm trying to do work that's kind of like thinky or like write, you're writing or stuff that takes concentration. It's like, you know, I, I can't even listen to music that has words when I'm like in the zone. Yeah, I have to, it only has to be instrumental. Like I can't, it just distracted. So as much as I want to hop in, I'm like, gosh, you know, people talking is going to, you know, it's going to break my train of thought. So that's one of the toughest things about the pandemic, not having those moments. Uh. What was it like shipping your first game? It was pretty dope. My first game actually ended up being the PS2 version of Deus Ex because halfway through DX2, we had a team that was working on it and things just weren't going well on the PS2 port. We're talking about putting Deus Ex loaded PC game on the PS2, <laughs> which I can't remember like how much memory it had. An Unreal game, yeah. On the yeah, an Unreal, an Unreal 1 on the PS2. Woo! Mm -hmm. Yeah, PS2 probably had like some megs of memory, if that. Yeah, it was probably measured in megs. You're right. Mm -hmm. I think most of our level design team and then a bunch of the programmers, we got pulled off of DX2 for a while to go work on P on the PS2 port. So actually, that PS2 port was the first game I ever shipped. And that was cool because Deus Ex probably still is my favorite game ever. I'm not saying it's the best game ever, but it's probably still my favorite game ever. Just is completely formative. I mean, it was like lightning in a bottle for me. And so it was cool because like I was the only person on the design team who had worked on the PC game. So I'm working with the dudes who made my favorite games. I, I did an interview one time with one of the dudes at Rock, Paper, Shotgun, and he described it as like, you got your chance to play with the Beatles is the way he put it. And I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, like the, the, these were my heroes and I'm sitting here making a new version of their game with them. I was like, this is so cool. So I was like pinching myself mostly, but it was cool because we got to go back to a lot of the parts of the game that they weren't happy with and that, that you know, we thought could be better. And so we reworked levels, we fixed scripting bugs. We not just did the port, but we also, you know, there's some parts of those levels that look quite different. So, hmm. you know, I can still think back to stuff I did on that that was like, oh, man, this is way cooler now. What leads to those discrepancies between ports? I'm always curious, like PC to console or console to PC. Usually there's some type of constraints that you have to work around. Yeah. I mean, back then, the biggest constraint was memory on the on the PS2 because Deus Ex struggled to run on PC. I mean, it took patch after patch after patch to kind of clean it up, but it was like very resource intensive. And so the PS2 trying to cram that in. So, I mean, immediately we had to chop the levels up. So that, that was that was the biggest hit was chopping the levels down just because of memory, you know. Are you just ripping out props and textures and things like that? Oh, no, we, we didn't want to do that because we didn't want it to be sparse and, and empty. So instead, we would just take it, like if we had one big level, we'd switch it into three pieces. So it just there's more places where we had to like take it and kind of funnel you into a level transition that, mm. that would be a hard load into the next one. So okay. there's a lot more loading on it, which is like, that's the only drawback for it is like the levels being smaller and having more sort of loading times. You remember those console games, especially consoles of reading off disc, right? It's just like, yeah. God damn, another loading screen. And then, you know, yeah. especially any Unreal game, right? Oh, yeah. We got better at masking it with like elevators and dialogue and shit like that. But those black screen loading screens were killer. Yeah. And do you remember when like we discovered that like you could play a bank file and do a load in the background? You could try to cover stuff up. You're like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's just industry a movie. standard, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was big. You see Bink on everything. Any any disc based mm -hmm. game, you would see Bink on mm -hmm. it in the loading screen. I don't remember how this happened, but was it essentially like Midway bought Ion Storm or you guys all left no, to form a studio no. under Midway? No, it's, it's no, it's much more sorted than that. Or not sorted, but it's just it's just kind of sad industry story. But basically DX two came out and broke even and did okay, but wasn't gangbusters. It was an expensive studio. You know, we, I think, had some schedule delays. And back then, especially, the Awesome was kind of known for, like, ambitious, nerdy games that didn't have the best graphics, didn't have good controls, but were, like, weird and nerdy and cool. 
mm-hmm. for like, you know, game nerds. So, you know, it wasn't like so commercially viable. And I remember the IDOS at the time, you know, they were kind of surprised that Deus Ex 1 had done so well. Mm-hmm. But as soon as DX2 like didn't set the world on fire, it broke even and made them some money, but it wasn't like a huge hit. And then same thing with Thief 3. I don't remember how Thief 3 did, but essentially at that time, they've got, you know, the Legacy of Kane games. They've of course got Tomb Raider. They've got Hitman has started doing well. You know, they had all these franchises that were way more marketable. And so we were just like, I think they merged with Square eventually too. Eventually, yeah. But yeah. but at the time it was just IDOS, which backwards is so die, just so you know, as in so comma die, like so die. Oh, weird trivia. And so it kind of got to be this thing where we were an expensive studio. We had made a big mistake in rewriting a lot of the Unreal Engine when we didn't have to. So there'd been a lot of tech debt and tech costs that kind of hurt the end product of the games. I mean, DX2 started off with terrain maps, water, elevators, all kinds of cool physics all stuff. All cool tech. As you're saying that shit, I'm just like, yo, didn't we do the same shit at Midway? Didn't history repeat itself at Midway? It wasn't nearly as bad at Midway as it was at Einstein. <laughs> okay. Einstein was all time. Because what happened was we had this whole thing because shared tech, yes, was in Midway to a much greater scale. But we just had DX2 and Thief 3 in the building. And so Thief 3, you know, the first two Thief games, all about lighting, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you know, turning Shadow, lights on dark, and off. Gameplay. Yeah, I don't think it was like super strong dynamic lighting in terms of like swaying lights, but it was the water arrow, you shoot the torch out and now becomes dark and it's safe. And so they're like, we have to have dynamic lighting for Thief 3. And so they had to rewrite the renderer because Unreal 2 did not have that. Mm-hmm. And so we had to un- rewrite the renderer. And then they were just like, oh yeah, well, if we're doing it for this game, then we can't support two lighting systems. So DX2 is just going to have to have dynamic lighting too, which we didn't want or need. You know, the first game had stealth, but it wasn't light-based stealth. It was more like geometry-based stuff, like hiding, sight lines, distances, stuff like that. And so basically we had to inherit that lighting on DX2. And one by one, there was like this cascade of knock-ons because the lighting couldn't handle it. We just couldn't start doing other stuff. So it was like, well, we're also switching to Havoc because we weren't realistic physics. But at the time, Havoc didn't have like a good parent-child system. So all of a sudden we had to cut elevators. So there's no moving elevators in the game, even though DX1 had moving elevators. Yeah. And it's like, well, Havoc doesn't support water physics yet. And so we also got to cut water. So all of a sudden swimming was gone, which like people don't love about DX1, but like it is a part of the DNA of the game. And, you know, some people like those swimming paths. Yeah, it gives you an alternate water, path. Cool and, in the tunnel, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it like gives you an alternate path. Like it's not worthless, even if the swimming's not that fun. We had these big terrain maps because Unreal 2 had the terrain, you know, real easy. You know, I had sculpting tools. And so you're just painting mm-hmm. terrains and hills and stuff like that. Like, oh, sorry. Well, the lighting engine can't put light on terrain, so we got to wow. cut the terrain. So we're just chopping, 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 chopping down because it's tech. Usually it's the other way around, right? It's like, usually it's like, all right, we're going to go in this direction with tech to give us more, not to yeah, like, exactly. constrain Yeah, exactly. And it so did much. for Thief. It made sense for Thief, but it, it was the whole thing of, of sharing tech because we had a shared tech group within the studio. And those people were supporting both games. And, you know, I get it. You can't support both, but it's like, okay, you know, in hindsight, should we maybe branched? At a certain point, and just said, look, you can have the tech team for the lighting. Y'all go do that. We'll just stick with whatever comes with Unreal. Like, you know, maybe we could have done that. Hindsight's 2020. Shit, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> so 2020. Remember the same shit happened at Midway, though, right? It was just yeah. like rewriting a bunch of the engine, make, trying to make it do yep. something that it's not natively good at doing. Yep. Make an open world game for the engine that had never shipped an open world game. Make an open world game, a criminal, you know, the team that hung on for Paladin, right? It was just like, yo, forget the Midway Frankenstein. We're just going to go on mm-hmm. vanilla UE3 with all the support drops and, and go forward, right? And yep. they, made, they made huge progress in like little time. Yeah. So what, like does Ironstorm get shut down or a little fire sale? We were seen by IDOS as basically as this expensive company that made nerdy games that had no ma- mainstream appeal. 
you know, like Deus Ex and the Thief games, which are like fantasy nerdy. And that whole thing is why Thief 3 was third person. The team didn't want to do that, but I just, I just kind of forced it because they thought third person was more accessible for whatever reason, marketing, who knows. And so basically they came in and Harvey left to go try to do a startup. He was going to do a startup that, that a bunch oh. of us were going to try to do with them. So he left first and it was like, oh boy, y'all are expensive. Your games are breaking even, but not setting the world on fire. One of your main creatives just left. Yeah. And so eventually they came in and they just did a big round of layoffs and they laid off like DX3 was in development and they laid off a huge chunk of the studio. Like not everybody, but it was like maybe two thirds. I, I don't know exactly. Like it was a, a pretty big death blow because I've seen this multiple times in our career, unfortunately. Like it's one of those where if we lay off most people, we can call it one thing. And then six months later, no one's going to notice if we shut the rest of it down. So it was one of those, mm, it's like a two stage sort of like, this is the hit that puts you in the coma. And then six months later, we'll pull the plug type deal. Dude, that's why they do it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, so a ton of people got laid off, including me. My mind was blown because this was like right after reviews and I had gotten this glowing review and like this huge raise. And they were like, oh my God, you did such a good job on DX2. Thank you. And I was like, oh my God, I found home. Yeah, I'm good. You're on cloud nine, man. You're thinking you're good and untouchable. Yeah, the the writing was on the wall that something was up. Like I remember towards the end of my time at Ironstorm, the desktop background on my work computer was a picture of the Titanic sinking. Like I, like, I, was, I, was, I know this is going down. And I was like a jerk about it, right? Like I was, I, I even had that picture printed out on a shirt and on the back it said, peace out. Like I wore that shirt to work. You the type of dude that goes and makes shirts about this shit. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, this, this was 25 me that didn't know any better. Sure. It wasn't a surprise. My surprise was that I got caught up in it because I was like, you know, you just told me I was doing awesome, gave me a good raise. What the hell happened? Mm -hmm. I can't remember who exactly told me, but one of the people, you know, one of the leads or directors who was in the room where they were literally just making the list, you know, who stays, who yeah, goes. Yeah. People were like, oh yeah, what about Ken? And I was like, well, he stays. And then one person was like, well, everybody knows he's going to go with Harvey's startup. Wow. So I got branded as one of the people who's going to join Harvey, which was true. Like I was going to go with Harvey's startup, <laughs> as was a bunch of people sure. who it wasn't as public. And so apparently they went to bat for me, like Ricardo and someone else went to bat for me. They they couldn't you know reverse that because once I was branded as, you know, going with, with Harvey, they were like, well, he's gone. You can't take that too bad. That's a pretty smart strategic move on their side. Yeah, I get it. I mean, like the whole layoff sucked, but you got this player who's going to leave in free agency anyway. Yeah, so you're so you going to get value. to trade him yeah. against value. Yeah, yeah. Here's the twist in that story, which always makes me laugh, is, so I'm, yeah, I'm despondent because I'm like, look, this is my dream job. I was only here three years. I just got laid off out of nowhere. Like, I had no clue this was happening. So I'm like, I'm like crushed. I don't know where I want to go. It always hurts. Yeah, and it hurts. And, and so I'm sitting there and then like over the weekend and like into Monday, I want to say it was Ricardo and maybe a couple other people, but they basically work out a deal where Einstorm will offer me a contract to stay. So they're like, okay, you're part of the layoff, but we're going to give you a contract if you want to stay and you can work here on contract and keep working on DX3. And I thought about it for a couple of days. Is that because they save a bunch of money bringing you on this contract? Because I was good at my job. And they wanted <laughs> to keep me. I mean, straight okay. up, like it was, they, they were just like, we can't get rid of this guy. You know, we want to keep him. After everybody's like, you, they were like, you let go of this guy? And they went and basically worked out a deal just for me to try to bring me back. So this wasn't like part of the layoff plan. This was all after the fact. Okay. But the funny thing is, is like also during that time, I was talking to Harvey and he was like, hey, we're pretty close to getting signed. I think it's going to be pretty quick. You know, like we we're talking to two different publishers. I forget who it was at the time. And so I went in to the guy who's running the company, this guy, Trey. I, I went in like on a Tuesday because he was like, hey, come on in, let's talk. We've got this contract option for you. If you want to stay, we can keep you on this contract. You know, we're not allowed to do hires right now because it's just layoffs, but we're allowed to have contractors. So if you want to come back, here's the contract. 
and I turned it down because I was convinced that our company, our startup was going to be in like a couple months. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go do the startup instead. And I'll never forget. I got up and I walked out of his office and I went to the design pit to just tell everybody goodbye one more time to just say, you know, I'd already got my stuff out, but I was like, Hey, I just want to let guys let you know, thanks for what you did for me. But I turned it down because I think this game could go. And I'll never forget. Trey had got on the office paging system or whatever. He yeah. said, Ricardo Bear, could you come to my office? Ricardo, please. Ricardo to my office. Because <laughs> he was like so surprised that I had turned it down. He was like, Ricardo, we need to talk right now. Oh, shit. And so I remember hearing the page and be like, yeah, yeah. I thought I was the man. Now, the flip side of that story is that company never off the ground. So I've spent like nine months, you know, and I turned down other contracts during that time too. Like I was going to go work on, um, what was it? Brothers in Arms, that game that Gearbox did. I was going to do like some level design contract work on that. The contract was there and I was, and I was like, well, you know, it sounds like our startup's going to be off the ground pretty soon. So I'm going to have to pass. So I was sitting there waiting, 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 collecting wow. unemployment and it never happened. And so when that fell through, Harvey ended up signing on at Midway and then he hired me back there. So that's how I ended up at Midway. And then at some point, all of Ironstorm got shut down completely, you know, like after yeah. the fact. So that's when Ricardo, Monty, Steve, Dave Kalina, you know, a bunch of people came over from that Ironstorm team. Here's one piece of advice I'll give to anyone who's trying to sign a deal, any kind of deal, be it your startup, it's not signed till it's signed. I wish I had taken, not the Ionstorm one, because that, that just stung too bad, you know, like I, I didn't mind turning that one down, but like, you know, that Brothers in Arms contract, where I was like, well, I can't sign up for three months because our company's going to start. And I got to be there on day one. It's like, yeah. I should have just said oh, three months. And if the company started, I can be like, well, as soon as I finish my contract, I'll be right there, but I got to yeah. see this out. Like, but in my mind, it was like, it was always so close. And it's like, look, until it's signed, it's not signed. And so if you need to do whatever to pay your bills and do whatever, take the gig because it's it's a bird in the hand. There's the promise of something, and that's always a moving target versus mm -hmm. a rock solid contract, ready to go, mm -hmm. has a finite term, going to pay you money. Which yep. one do you take? Take the fucking hard paper, sign it, get your money. Yeah. And that moving fictional thing will always be there. It will always be there. And like it, and especially as deals get bigger, it's real easy to get a deal to the point where both sides are like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's do it. Like, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like where we're at. Money seems to be good in principle. Like the arrangements seems good. Cool. We'll just have the lawyers draw it up. And then that indefinite time period between yeah. everybody can agree in principle and it can still take for freaking ever. Like that's good advice. You know, mom dudes has always told me, it's like, yo, don't tell anybody about any moves you're making until it happens right like yep. don't be like hey i got this new job hey the interview went well they're gonna offer me the thing i'm just waiting on the terms okay i'm gonna yeah. sign okay i'm waiting to start like for that same reason right it could blow up at any point until your name mm -hmm. is on the dotted line i've been in situations i've seen people put in their resignation notice yeah i took this job i signed and then you know counter offer or something random else happens, right? Where people renege or pull back. I've seen it happen small yeah. scale. I've seen it happen at fucking Amazon. So you're at Midway. I'll tell you one thing. We got laid off in June, early June, Austin, mm -hmm. Texas. And so that whole summer, me and a couple other dudes, my friend Chris Carollo, who he was also at Midway. He was Chris our lead criminal. Where is yep, he? And Brian Sharp. He's been at Valve ever since Midway went down. Is Brian at Facebook or... He was for a while. He was for a long time. Cause he, yeah. Cause he created, he created that medium. It's, it's the sculpting, the 3d sculpting VR app. He created that very early and he was part of Oculus story studio. 
they were kind of like a team that kind of, I think they got acquired with Oculus Studio, Story Studio into, into Facebook. And then Story Studio got shut down, which I was also part of. Third time I got laid off in my career. But the media team had spun out. So he was there for a while. He sold to Story Studio and then to Facebook or whatever. So, you know, that was his company. And so he was at Facebook for a long time. He's out now. And I cannot remember where he signed on with now. But me and him and Brian, that summer what I did was I went to the pool and I went to the gym. And that was the one time, everybody's got that one period in their life where they were freaking jacked. Jacked and tan, I, looking healthy, yeah. glowing. That, that summer is when I was tanned and jacked. The what one time, the summer of 2004. I've heard it, man. It's like the Flyboy summer, or, or Pete Davidson has another term for it, man. He calls it like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna edit this out, I'm gonna bleep it. But for you and me, it's like the the big dick summer or something like that, man. Like, <laughs> well, you call it that, but like that's that's when the, that summer is on a camping trip out at the lake is when I hooked up with Christine, and that's why I'm married oh, now. Oh snap! So she yeah. met you. She met you. Looking your flyest and free. You're kind of free, looking <laughs> yeah, fly. Exactly. You have all the time in the world. Because, you know, I, I always feel like that's the allure of, let's say, rich people or people that are well off, right? Is, mm -hmm. the, is that appeal of, wow, this person has no constraints or responsibilities or can just take off on the drop of a dime and go on some adventure or something like that. Mm -hmm. and so on the flip side of that, man who is li living off fun employment, Lifting, getting sun, super fun, yep. no worries, right? It has the same yep. exact appeal. Damn. Yep. Out, of, out of Lake Travis. Lake Travis. Yo, is that, is, is that the same one you can go floating down? No, that's, um, I know what you're talking about. That's the, that's the river. Is that the Guadalupe River? That, that it could be. It has to be a river, right? It's not going to yeah. be a still-bodied lake. Yeah, Lake Travis was the big, was the big lake with the cliffs you could jump off of. Oh, shit. Yo, yeah. I love it. I love the dots connecting, right? Like maybe <laughs> if you had taken a job somewhere or one of the contracts mm -hmm. turned into some full-time thing, you wouldn't have been able to get jacked, get tanned, and meet your significant other. That's right. Dude. Life is a weird thing. So eventually, Harvey delivers on his promise or his word. He's like, yo, mm -hmm. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you a job. And he, he lands at Midway. And he brings you on. That's right. What the hell are you doing at Midway? Were you always on Criminal? Did you come in like day one? Yeah, it's, it's funny because like, I remember when I was interviewing with Harvey, we were at Frank and Angie's, that pizza place down in Austin. And I was interviewing even, and he told me like, they have this game. I think it had been at another studio and it had like been taken from that studio or something, or it hadn't gone well, or the studio had gone under or something. So they had this, this game called Career Criminal that was like a, a PS2 game that I don't think it ever like even got announced or anything. It's just like a, a, a game that one of the other studios in Midway had somehow they'd lost it in some way. And like, hey, they, you know, they think it's a cool idea. They want to reimagine it. And so I remember sitting with them and even before I came on being like, look, man, I don't want to do a game about killing a bunch of people. I was like, because at that time, like GTA was it, right? Like GTA 3 was still so big. Even at this point in, this was late 2004, early 2005, mm -hmm. Vice City, San Andreas, mm -hmm. like San GTA Andreas was, was it. fresh out, yeah, 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 and 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 like Midway was like open world games are it. We're gonna follow the trend. Everything's got to be open world, blah blah blah. And so I was like, I don't want to make just some violent chaos shoot 'em up game. And so I was like, what if we? And me and Harvey, unsurprisingly, for a couple of nerdy dudes, fans of the movie Heat. And so I was like, what if we made like a thinking man's like heist game? You know, like we yeah. case the place and like 
the point is to not kill people and you try to just sort of like, you know, intimidate them and get out without, you know, hurting anybody. And da, da, da. So like, how, what if we made it like that? And so I was like, that could work. That could work. So I remember even pitching that before I even signed on, but I just signed on as a game designer, certainly not a level designer, especially not an open world game. I just signed on as a game designer and Steve Monty were there too. Ricardo went to Warren's company for a while. He didn't join Midway till a, a piece later. He went to Warren's company on a project that never got announced. Warren Speck. Yeah. Cause they were working on something else and then something happened. It didn't get greenlit or got canceled or something like that. And that's when they switched to Epic Mickey. And I think that like Ricardo was interested in the other projects, wasn't interested in Epic Mickey and like something else fell through. I think they had a project with Valve or something. After Midway, I interviewed for Epic Mickey. And I was all about really? it. I was like, oh yeah, man. I like, you know, I'm a big gameplay guy. And like, oh shit, I love this like physics puzzles, you know, mm -hmm. dematerialize and materialize objects and things like this. It's just this amazing small ecosystem of talent and projects. If you're just in Austin, like you don't really mm -hmm. have to leave Austin. And I know a few people that have never left Austin. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And been fine. I mean, that's a big list. That's a big list. And like after Midway, I was like, look, this is two companies down that I've been at. And like at that time, the Austin scene was kind of at its its low point. Yeah. A lot of shit was coming down, right? The little housing bubble crisis was hitting mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. hard. I thought, I thought that's what led to Midway's downfall. But I come, when you do research on like the Redstones or whatever, there's, there was a whole bunch of mad money things going on way above their game studios, oh, right? Like at the Viacom yeah. level. Oh, yeah. Mm. Man, I hadn't heard that name Redstone in so long. Wow, or, yeah. Is it Sumner Redstone? Sumner yeah, Redstone, yeah, yeah, yeah. And his daughter. I don't know if you watch Succession. I, I love the fuck out of this type of world where it's like, hey, we're the family and kids of a major media conglomerate, and this is mm -hmm. our life, and this is how we roll, and these are the problems that affect us at this unsurmountable level. And I, and I think about the Redstones in that fashion. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, man, they just kind of push each other. You know, here's a movie production company, or here's a news company, and you own this, mm -hmm. and you cut up that. I'm going to have to see Succession. I've had it recommended so many times. I don't know why I've never watched it, but I'll check it out. I met his daughter, because at, at the time, he was, like, really up there. He was, you know, in his, like, late 80s or something. And I met his daughter, his daughter, and she was, you know, mid sixties or something like mm -hmm. not crazy old, but getting up there too. So he was definitely the mogul, the old mogul, you know, the adult kids running the family. Yeah. I met her briefly. I think I did a little show and tell demo for her of our game. It was like one of these like meet and greet studio visits where it's like, she's going to be here for five minutes, show her the game for five minutes. And she just whisks off to the next thing. It's not like, you know, she took me out to the Ritz Carlton or whatever. It was just like, uh, she stopped by the office for five minutes. Could have been dangerous for you, Kent. Yeah. What a wild time, man. Before you would jump out of Austin, I, I gotta, I just gotta take time and reminisce with you while we can about sure. just the promise of a kid coming out of school and being like, yo, PS3, 360 title, looking as good as Gears of War did, and we're shipping this sucker in a year. And then after that, you're going to roll on to Criminal, which is this, again, it was pitched as this take the movie heat, like heist style game with a crew and different mm -hmm. archetypes and planning and all this shit and, and, and open mm -hmm. world, right? So it's just like, holy yep. shit, I'm going to go work on a cooperative first-person shooter with pretty cool systems and then move mm -hmm. into like an open world game. And it's going to be Midway, right? You're like, I don't care who you are, where, where you at at the time, but Midway is still a huge household name in that video game publisher space, right? Yeah. Like then you knew the M, that red M. The M. Red M. Oh, <laughs> man. And I used to love the way we would do all hands, right? That we, we would kind of go to the mm -hmm. Alamo and we would do a show and tell with oh. not just what we were doing, right? Not just what, what Midway Austin was doing, but 
Midway Chicago and Midway yeah. uh, San Diego and Midway Stranglehold. Yeah, we would see Stranglehold. Mortal we would Kombat. See, we would see Mortal Kombat. We would see there was the project called Vegas. We would see Wheelman mm-hmm. with the Air Jack, legendary yeah. Air Jack move. <laughs> that game shipped, right? That yeah, game yeah. shipped. Wheelman yeah. shipped. I think I got. I got so much respect for the two teams. Three, because TNA Wrestling, the three teams that shipped out of that. TNA Wrestling shipped Unreal at 60 frames a second. And like, and Stranglehold, here's the big shout out to Stranglehold. And like, this is a qualified shout out because they crunched that team into the ground. And so this sure. is not a success story from that perspective. But you have to respect, they shipped an Unreal 3 title on PS3 before Epic did. On PS3, which was a beast to develop for. The PS3 was a beast. Epic hadn't figured out how to optimize their tech. They were still figuring it out for them damn selves, right? Let alone all mm-hmm. the like Unreal 3 licensees, right? Yeah. And they're doing all the they're doing all the gear stuff, which is Xbox. Yeah, exactly. It was Microsoft funded. And so they didn't have to worry fuck all about PS3 until I think it was a midway deal for Unreal Tourney. Was it Unreal Tournament? Yeah, Unreal Tournament on the PS3. No, Unreal Championship? It was an Unreal game. It was an Unreal, Unreal game on PS3 that Midway published. Know. And so yeah. that was the chance to be like, all right, now we got to figure out PS3. And once we figure out PS3, yeah. we'll, we'll drop an update. So, but Stranglehold did it first, though. They did it before Epic did. That is respect right there. Dude, heck yeah. There you go. So many action games. And, and we get you know we got demos out on XBLA, right? I remember couple weeks in i was like yo you know calling the family yo we got a demo on xbla my brother like literally like rolled out of bed hit the download button i was like yo bro i'm playing your game and giving all this love and the gas station demo yes nice yes yes yeah with the ends with the i forget what we call them man but it was like the spire or something like that that would come down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the the slow motion matrix right bullet time was all the rage back in those days Mm -hmm. yes i remember that Mm mm-hmm and you had you had that one you had that one uh, monster that you would kill, but the legs would blow off and it would keep crawling at you. Oh there shit! Was that one too. It, oh yeah, there was like these half half man cybernetic things, right? And so you yeah, could and if you blew the legs off, the top would still cool crawl yeah. at you. Yeah, that was Last of Us tech before its mm-hmm. time for sure. I tell people that, damn man, it was it was a golden era. I mean, I kind of went through what you went through. I don't know, not 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 a full decade later, but similar situation, right? The first studio paired mm-hmm. with crazy industry veterans. I didn't even know. I would just hear you guys talk and it'd be like, yo, those guys sound like they know what they're doing. But to me, it's like <laughs> Scott Lang, Scott Carpenter, the Scott, Harold Hanlon, uh, you, mm-hmm. uh, Ricardo, Harvey. Jim. Don't, Jim don't Stiffelmeyer. Yeah, Jim Stiffelmeyer. Like crazy mentorship level that if I knew better, right, if I knew what I knew now, right, it'd just be like, yo, I will buy you motherfuckers lunch. Like, <laughs> let, let me let me just absorb and sponge stories and knowledge and, like, how do I get better at my job? Because the wealth of, of experience and game development pedigree and the shit you guys were building and the problems you guys solved on the crazy tech that you guys were standing up. And then at the same time, I'm hanging out with all my homies, right, like all the people I went to college with, Mm-hmm. Midway Austin was kind of like my, I could say postgraduate degree, man, but it was definitely living on a college budget in a, in a great town at the time, comparatively yeah. to California and all these other places, Seattle, you can go out and hit the downtown, Austin was fun, man. get, get beers at like fun. under a dollar. It's fucking good times. Yep. But all good things inevitably must come to an end. You get to 2K Marin, but before we get there and you leaving Midway, mm-hmm. We know you met your wife there. 
We know you got to work with your own homies. You got to creative director, maybe faster than you should have, but you did. <laughs> Definitely. What takeaways do you have from Ion Storm? Now you're at Midway. Now you got this whole team with this amazing project that has all the promise in the world, but this stupid business shit tied to it as, as usual. What takeaways do you have, man, when Criminal mm. went under and, and we all got disbanded? If you work in this industry long enough, you're going to have projects canceled. You're going to get laid off or you're going to have, you know, disappointments. Or you're going to have a project that did not work out as well as you thought. Sometimes you're a part of that. Sometimes it's out of your hands. But ultimately, I don't look back with any regret about it. I mean, partly I'm not a regret person, but like mm -hmm. I don't look back with regret on it because both at Iron Storm and at Midway, I was trying stuff that was ambitious. Yeah. That was, was at the limits of what my abilities were. So I was growing and I was always pushing and I was like engaged and I believed in what I was doing. Like I've never worked on a game where I felt like I was punching a clock or where I was working on something I didn't give a crap about. Actually, well, we'll get to 2K Marine in a bit because one project there, <laughs> I, I did, I did feel, I didn't feel like I was punching a clock, but I was very miserable. But even, you know, three and a half years for a game that never even got announced and got laid off. You know, some people would say like, wow, that's three and a half years of your career gone. But I made great friends and great relationships. I mean, I met all you guys, yeah. you know, and gals, Juliana. Jay Bud. Yo, yeah. she's like, she's like a real estate mogul now down in Austin. Really? A mm -hmm. mogul? Wow. <laughs> she, she's but, like in this space of bringing big tech and data analytics and all that to the, to the oh, space wow. that, you know, and, and doing good with her, with her husband. It's, it's going well. Nice. Good mm -hmm. for them, man. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But yeah, but, but like met great people, worked on stuff, did cool, interesting, you know, game mechanics and gameplay features, learned so much, you know, both about myself and about game design and how games work. And like, you know, often, I mean, it's a cliche, but like often you learn more from failures and successes. Totally. We had, we had such a diverse team too. That's something I take mm -hmm. for granted. Like it was my first gig, right? So I'm just like, oh, this is how it's always going to be. We're going to have a great mix of, of youth and age and wisdom and backgrounds and languages mm -hmm. and cultures, right? It was like, mm -hmm. this is games, this is the norm. And then you move around and you're like, oh shit. Yeah. It's not this, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was wild, man. It was wild. We had such a good crew. But like, ultimately, after both of those things, it's like, I look back and I'm, there's a saying, I'm, I'm, I've got a deep, deep, deep bag of sayings. Um, but, but one of you my favorite, you know, one of my True. favorites is, um, at the end of it, all we'll have is how we behave during it. No matter how it goes, you can look back, how did I handle myself during that situation? And what did I get from it? How did I behave? You know, did I learn? Did I grow? Did I treat other people the right way? Mm -hmm. You know, did I support people? Was I empathetic and stuff like that? So I guess even though it looks like, a, you know, failures on paper when a project gets canceled and the studio gets shut down, I don't think of it as a waste of time. I don't have regrets about it. I don't wish I'd done something different because, you know, it's part, it's part of the story and you take what you can from it. And I mm -hmm. learned so much from people and learned so much about making games and mistakes not to make and met so many great people that like, it's a bummer that it went how it did, but you know, it, it also helped me avoid other mistakes in the future and see mm -hmm. writing on the, when I started seeing similar writing on the wall, you know, I got out like two of the things that I, at Ironstorm, like I said, I knew it was going down. Mm -hmm. 
I stayed anyway because I had stupid hope. You you never wore that Titanic shirt at Midway, thank goodness. <laughs> well, yeah. Once once you're in a leadership position, you got to project a certain thing. How I saw that you carry yourself was always willing to acknowledge not knowing something and and always giving a space or voice to everybody in the room, right? To be like, how do you see it? How do you see? It? How do you see? It? Okay, I'm hearing all these ideas. What if we go this way, kind of thing? And I, and I thought that's something I always carried with me to be like, yo, that's that's a strong way to handle directing a team right giving everybody a voice oh damn i mean you I, know there's a flip side to that of like what, what happens when hard decisions need to be made right but you were saying because like you the thing you just described is also like something you kind of can't teach like that empathy mm. piece of it as a, as a leader like you either have it or you don't you, you you truly care about how people feel and if they're comfortable or if they're like contributing or not you know like and so i always had that but i didn't know like i didn't know what direction was when i was a creative director like i, I didn't know how to give good direction so I would give, you know, I would try to give people freedom, make sure to listen to everybody, give everybody a voice, have open door and all this stuff like that. But people also want to know, you know, sort of the guidelines and the parameters of, of where they want to do their work. You know, you need yeah. to give people what I call liberating constraints, you know, like you need to say, hmm. you know, here's the direction. It needs to meet this. And within this box or within this framework, be creative and do whatever you want. I don't know what solution you're going to come up with. And the more you practice, the more you can give direction. You know, like the, the yardstick for good direction is... If you give direction and someone comes back with an idea, regardless of what you think about it, if it meets your direction, then mm -hmm. they did what you asked. If you don't like it or if, you, if it exposes some flaw with your thinking or if it's something that meets all that stuff and it's not good for some reason or it breaks something else, then that mm -hmm. means your direction wasn't good enough. And you need to revisit the direction. Does it need to change or you yeah. know, do you need to do it better next time? But like, it's just all about trying to give people the right space and constraints to do work and be creative and, and have autonomy within that. Yeah, um, so, and that's so, something that like I'll probably never stop learning because that's really hard to do. Those, those are things that you figured out afterwards, right? To be like, yo, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, had, yeah. we had a bunch of freedom. You gave a bunch of autonomy and that was great, but we could have definitely benefited from a bit more constraining, right? To be yeah. like, yo, let's go in this direction, you know? Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, I hell yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what that was, but like, so that's what I meant like way early on. I was like, I was not good at that job. The first two companies I was at, I was a true believer. I was like, we're making this stuff. It's creative. It's cool. I'm working with my friends. And both times I knew the writing was on the wall and I knew it was going down. And I just stayed anyway, because at that point in my career, it, it, this sounds stupid to say now, but I didn't know that I was allowed to prioritize my own happiness or my own goals or my own well-being and quit. I, I just didn't know that if you're in a situation that's bad for you or the situation you don't think is going anywhere or whatever, I didn't know you could quit. I didn't know you could prioritize your own mental health, your own happiness, your own sanity. And so... I kind of just like walked into it. Like I knew it was going down and I stayed anyway. Like mm. one of the weirdest meetings I've ever had was I knew, I knew the week before that we were going to get shut down on that coming Monday. Is that just because they do like a whole leadership meeting, executive meeting thing? Yes and no. It actually, there was a game developer message board called quarter to three. Was it There's some sort of like anonymous message board thing. And someone posted a rumor on like the Tuesday before we were going to get shut down. And I think it was someone from the Midway Chicago studio who somehow had found out. And they were like, hey, the Austin studio is getting shut down on Monday or massive layoffs. Like, you know, they'll land up 80% of the security yep. it was. And so I went to Denise's office, who was our studio Denise head. Fulton, yeah. Yeah, Denise Fulton. Um, I went to her office and I was like, hey, I just read this thing. It's wild. Like, is this true? And she was like, what? That's another she hadn't thing. seen it either. A, a, a female studio head, right? Like, like yeah. how... How awesome was that studio constructed? But that, yeah, that was, God, especially in, in, in 2008, the, yeah. what she must have gone through to get there, like so much respect. So you go into her office. So I go to her office and she's like, what, what? And she goes and looks at it too. And she's like, I'll call, you know, give me a second. 
And like, she probably knew at that point, but it was a surprise to her that it had been leaked that way. So, you know, I, at some point there was like a small leadership meeting that was like, hey, this is going to happen. And so, you know, get prepared for it. And so, uh, and I knew I was going to be gone too. Like, you know, she had the, the courtesy to, to tell me that I was going to be part of the left because they were laying off our entire freaking team. Yeah, the whole team. But the weirdest thing was that happened to be the end of a milestone. And so we had an all day planning meeting on that Thursday for the milestone we were kicking off Monday. And I knew that we were getting shut down on Monday. And so I had to sit there as the creative director of the project in a milestone planning meeting for eight hours that day and be actively engaged in planning a milestone. I knew it was never going to happen. And like, even, even to the degree of like, oh, well, you know, if we can't fit this in, let's push it out to the next milestone that can go out here, like horse trading for features and stuff like that. Just knowing the whole time, this is all going boom on Monday. So that was weird. One of the other lessons, basically the idea is if you work on stuff that's engaging to you and interesting to you and drives you and fulfills you, then the outcome of it isn't the most important thing. It's great when it goes great, but even if it goes down, you have those lessons to take with you and that growth that you had to take with you. And, and, and that's always worth it versus if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're only motivated by the end project, if you're like, oh man, I hate this kind of game and I don't like this game at all, but I'm going to work on it because I'm going to get a bonus or because, you know, it's a big title. It's going to look good on my resume, even though I hate working on it. Who cares? Like, it's not worth it. You have to follow what matters to you and find your own drive and motivation and joy in it. And if you're working on stuff that you believe in, then whatever the outcome is, it's worth it. So. Like That's why that. I don't regret those companies because like when I was there and the stuff I learned, I was doing it because I wanted to. And I got up every day because I believed in what I was doing. And so when you have that, then it can only be so bad. But the second piece is that like, yeah, I didn't know I could prioritize my own happiness. Yeah. And so when at my third suit, not to jump ahead, but, but at 2K Marin, when things went really south there, I finally quit a job when I knew things were going really bad. Prioritize your, your mental health and it's okay to quit when things aren't going well. It's weird, right? Like I ne never haven't been in that position to be like, yo, you're a director, it's your team, it's your project, it's your baby. Do you have to go down with the ship? That was an a aspect of it. Like w once you're that high of a leadership position, it is a lot harder to leave for sure. But yeah, it, and at 2K when I quit, I almost lost it telling people like probably three different times at the studio when I told them I was leaving because I was just like, I feel like I'm abandoning people. I feel like letting you do that. It was like, your first time. It was your first my time. My first time for quitting and like. It's hard, man. It was a horrible, horrible year of my life working on, on the game after Bioshock 2. And I like, I had to, I had to get out. Like there's no, there was no way I couldn't do it, but it was, but you know, but at that point I learned that it was, it was the right call. I mean, they, again, that studio got shipped a, a game that didn't do well and, and wasn't received well and got shut down. Like it was the writing had been on the wall there too. And like, I, I guess you developed that knack for, for seeing the signs after seeing them twice. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly reading the tea leaves when, when everybody's unhappy and the game's not going well and people are fighting and the direction keeps changing. You're like, <laughs> like yeah. it's, you don't need third eye vision to like understand, you know, things aren't going too good. I think it's worth mentioning and reemphasizing, prioritize your happiness. You're not going to be doing your team any favors in the long run. If, if you're really hating life, you're doing them a favor. If you can kind of rip the bandaid off and let them move someone else up into the role that is excited for it or can bring something to it, or they can start hiring. Yeah. And, and ultimately you're in a better spot. Yeah. I mean, and, and this, and this is going to sound more nihilistic or pessimistic than it's intended to, but like in the end, even if you have the most supportive, empathetic manager great studio culture, all the supports around you at the company, like in the end, you're the only one that knows what's going on with you. 
And mm -hmm. you're the only one who really knows inside what's going on, what the situation is, what you're dealing with, what's going on in your personal life, what's going on with your mental health, whatever it is. And so ultimately you're the only one that knows that stuff. And regardless of the pressure you feel or the, how you think other people will take it or whatever, like in the end, there's no one looking out for you, but you in, in that true sense, you know, not that there aren't people looking out to support you and stuff like that, but like, and I'm not trying to say like be narcissistic and selfish and self-centered, but ultimately you got to be honest with yourself. And sometimes, you, you know, you have to make those hard decisions because nobody truly knows what's going on inside if you're really struggling with something. So I've been laid off a bunch of times, so I never had to make the hard decision. And then over the past handful of years, yeah, to, 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 to make that hard decision to be like, I'm a part of this team, you consider you guys my team, but I have a better opportunity. Got to put in notice. And it's damn hard to quit. It's damn hard to quit. It takes mm -hmm. conviction and, and committing to yourself. But yeah, I think putting yourself first and making the decision and being like, yo, this is what's best for me and I got to do it. And, 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 I, and I don't want to cast it in the way that like always be looking out for yourself, or whatever, because I've never in a good situation being like, ooh, let me see what else is better out there. And like, oh, I'm just out for me or I'm not, I'm not casting it like that. I'm talking about the only times I've ever quit had been times when I was in situations that were like pretty much destroying me, like Shit. emotionally and mental health wise, like okay. really toxic, not sometimes toxic, sometimes just like very, very depressing and really taking a huge toll on my personal life and stuff like that, where I had to get out to preserve myself and like to okay. save myself. I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, oh, hey, I'm always looking out for number one and da, 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 da. I'm, mm. I'm, 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 not, I'm not talking about going out trying to find something better. Like that's yeah. not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying when you're in a situation that is harming you and that is toxic and leading to depression and like really, really damaging your mental health. Yeah. That's when no one ever really knows what's going on with you. And you've, 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 you've got to protect yourself at some point. That, that, that's all I meant. I'm definitely not advocating for like, Hey, look out for number one, go out yeah. and get the best money. Like whatever. Like, I've quit every best paying job I've ever had. I, the number of times I've quit taking a pay cut because I wanted it because I had to get out of somewhere is like, I mean, it's still counting on one hand. I'm not that old, but like it's, it's definitely <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, thanks for, thanks yeah. for calling out the difference. There is a big yeah, difference. I'm there. definitely not trying to be like, yeah, be a climber, be number one. Like that's the opposite. It's, it's more that I haven't gotten to that part yet where the really bad situations have turned toxic. So yeah, we'll get there. When you left to Cameron, it's interesting because mm -hmm. it's, it's it's like a similar type of game being made at Ion Storm. It was the same. Are they like Ion Storm, Midway, 2K Marin, similar game projects? I, I think Ion Storm and Marin were because Bioshock was just the sort of mainstream version of System Shock 2. Yeah. I mean, you play those games and there's, there's so many commonalities between them. Same company, mm -hmm. same creative director. Literally shock in the same title, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, System Shock, Bioshock. And Bioshock was just basically like the more action-oriented shootery version of the immersive sim, but it still had non-linear levels. You could go back and forth between, you know, it was decks of a spaceship in System Shock. It was underwater world. The different big levels in the underwater, the neighborhoods or whatever in the, in Rapture. But it still was like, hey, I'm going around. I'm scavenging for stuff. I'm upgrading my weapons, uh, you know, finding tonics to change my abilities. Instead of cyber modules, you know, hearing audio logs from dead yep. people, you know, so you get the narrative like, unveiled. Yeah. So, I mean, like it's they're you know, structurally, they're very similar games. It's just, you know, one was done with a more like, hey, let's try to make this something that's not as alienating from the mainstream perspective. So those are very similar games. I, I would consider Bioshock an immersive sim personally. Yeah, I, w I would agree with you on that. Similar type of games. You left Austin. 
or sunny NorCal. NorCal. Sunny ish NorCal most of the times. I mean, the, the North Bay was sunny. Yeah. Nevada, where Tuca Marin was, mm. definitely sunny. And you leave to go to LucasArts. Was that a big move? Was it, you know, from a long list of options or was it like, yo, this person, I want to work with them on this game or what, what led you to Lucas? After Midway, I went to 2K Marin where Jordan Thomas was the creative director on, on Bioshock 2. They were still building up a team. You know, they built that studio and that team to make that game, which was really cool because the only people in that building were people who were like, I love Bioshock and I want to work on the sequel. And, you know, like Jordan, he was the lead designer of Thief 3. He made The Cradle, which is like one of the most famous levels from Thief 3. He made Fort Frolic, which was, oh, shit. you know, one of the famous levels from Bioshock 1. Mm-hmm. And so he was the creative director and I knew him for my instrument. So I kind of had that connection with them. And there were a bunch of other really talented people working there. And it was a team of people who loved Bioshock and wanted to work on the sequel. And they were there for that kind of game. Like there was no pretense. They weren't a bunch of journeymen who were just doing whatever. They're like, nah, this is it. The Bioshock 2 team was the first great team I've ever worked with. I've worked with two great teams and I want to say it about Brassline also, but you got to make something before you can put that stamp on. You got to ship something. So okay, soon. I worked, worked with two and number three is in progress. Nice. I mean, phenomenal team, unbelievably talented. And Bioshock 2 was a pretty quick project from the time I joined. But, it, and, you know, and we had ups and downs. You know, there were times that were difficult or stressful. We had, we had a delay that was kind of unexpected and tough, but that team was dope. Working with everybody was great. It was a great working experience. I met so many great people. I had such a great time. And then it all crashed after we shipped because we got moved on to the XCOM project that was being led out of the Australia studio. And it was just a tough transition for the team because we had been lead studio in this game that was a hit. Yeah. Great reviews, great sales. You know, you go back now and there's the number of articles you can find that says like Bioshock 2 is the best Bioshock game. It's like validating. Remind me, you play as the big daddy? Yep. Hell yeah. Yeah, you go back to Rapture. You go back to a really... 10 years later, worn out version of Rapture. We called it Crapture because it was so <laughs> worn out or whatever. But yeah, so Bioshock 2 was great. It's funny because as we were talking about this and I've been reading about the development of Bioshock, fired up on the PS5. I have like the collection. It was like free on PSN or something like this. So uh-huh. I'm, like, I'm going back to Rapture after all these years and playing through the first Nice. Movie. And I'm going to get to part two for for my first time. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh, you never played? The I never played part games? two. Oh, wow. It's... We're going to have a conversation once again okay. after I played some of that. It's funny the way things manifest because I, I saw some headlines that are like Netflix signs, Bioshock mm-hmm. series or something like this. It was a very hard transition for the team that had just, you know, all working together. We we come out with this game that was being so well-received and fun to work on with, with a great team. And then all of a sudden we just kind of get put as a service team onto the XCOM game, which had some issues with the concept. And it, it just wasn't going well. It was not a, a fun development to be on. And basically like 2010 is the, you know, that full calendar year I worked on it as the worst year of my life. Like not professional life, just life. Oh, shit. I, okay. I was it, like work made me so depressed that it was just like my whole life it was just depression. Like they want to do anything, not motivated, no energy. It just affected everything in my life. Like, I, yeah. you know. It's crazy how what you do at work can domino into the rest of your life, right? If it's mm-hmm. however much of your day, a third of your day, how it can just bleed over into the other yeah. third. It of was your day. so I felt like every day and, and I and I 
you know, had a lead position and the people who worked for me were like yelling about how much problems the game had and how this is never going to work and all this, that, and the other. And so I had to take all of that from them and try to go argue uphill, you know, upwards to try to get changes made. And it was just like this process where like, I, you know, I agreed with what they were saying and I didn't have faith in it and couldn't get anything done. So I felt like I was failing the people who reported to me. But also I had sort of that like responsibility with authority or, or like whatever it is, like, like I'm accountable for it, but I don't have control over it. So I'm just, mm. I get the worst of everything where we couldn't get any changes made. In, and ultimately after I, you know, after I left, made leadership changes and changed the concept of the game and basically like rebooted it because they realized it was a problematic concept the way it had been developed and, and they changed a ton and basically changed the game and a bunch more people quit. Like, you know, yeah. I, I was the first, but I was not the last. So like, it was a terrible situation, but like, it was so depressing and it was just affecting my life like in such a bad way. What about the way that the project was being led, making life so shitty? I ask because I feel like it's worth knowing for other people who are at the helm yeah. of a project, right? To see the signs or learn what leads to a team's frustration. Even 10 plus years later, I don't want to come off like I'm trashing anybody or, or whatever. Essentially, there were elements of the core concept from a design perspective, I would say, that everybody knew were not going to work. There, 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 were, there were sort of fundamental flaws. Huh. And no matter how many times people raised it or argued about it or whatever, we couldn't get it changed. And so people just felt like they were... Not being listened to. It's not even just that, but then you come to work every day and and whatever you're asked to do, you're like, okay, but this isn't going to work. So like, why am I doing... You, your work feels pointless because yeah. you think it's doomed. So when you feel something's doomed and pointless, you have to do it anyway and you come into work every day. Sure. But I mean, so, you know, listening to your team, if the consensus is, hey, this doesn't work, it's not going to work. Yeah. I think I would chalk it up to, you know, you're not listening to your team. That's, mm -hmm. that's an easy sign of, all right, man, things are not going to go well. Yep. People are going to quit. Yeah. And I've seen other projects not quite that bad in terms of that, of that element where the team just doesn't believe in it. And, I've, and it's, it's deadly, man. As, as you know, like a team makes a game. It's not one person mm -hmm. that auteur theory is bullshit. Nope. Oh, you yeah. know, it's a team. And the, that team's either moving in the same direction and believing in it or, or not. Usually it's somewhere in between, right? But when you see that belief meter at just zero, it's not just not believing in it or thinking that it's flawed or thinking that it's kind of doomed in that sense. Because it was a co-development thing. So I was kind of like the lead on the Marin side, but I was reporting into people at other studios. And so every day I was getting this from my team. This is broken. It's not going to work. It's flawed. It's, you know, whatever. And I agreed. And so I have to, on one hand, say, hey, you know, I have to play the manager. Mm -hmm. hey, thanks for raising that. I'm definitely going to bring it up again. You know, like, no. da, da, da. like, so I'm absorbing all this vitriol, which I agree with, but as a lead, you can't just be like, yeah, this shit's bullshit. You know, like I agree too. This is so stupid. You can't commiserate that way. Cause you got to kind of hold a certain line. And then, so then I take that. I believe them. I agree with them. I turn around, try to get the changes made and it's just not working. And so I feel like I'm failing the people who work for me. I feel like I'm not effective at getting these changes made. And so I'm just, everything is shitty from all sides, yeah. up, above, below, to the sides. And so it just wrecked me. I wonder if you weren't in an elite position, would it have been as hard? But like, this goes on for a year. Yeah, yeah. And so that that whole year, so so that's when I finally was like, I got to get out. And, yeah. you know, so so I started looking for jobs. And I was just like, because it was just joyless. It was a joyless, I mean, yeah. I, I would, I remember I would drive up to work. How long was that commute? 30 minutes. Like a stopwatch because it was, it was reverse commute. I lived in the city and drove up to Marin. Most people live in Marin and work in the city. So there's gridlock one way and I'm just flying the other way every day. Oh, like, God. I mean, like a, like a stopwatch. There was only like two stoplights on the whole trip. It was Damn. awesome. So, I mean, you set the cruise control, put your music on and, and it's, it's easy.
but I would pull into the parking lot and it would take me between five and 10 minutes before I could get out of the car. Cause I would pull into my spot and turn my car off and just be like, I'd have to just like get myself psyched to be able to open the door and like walk across the parking lot. Because I was just like, I, I can, it was, it was like literally like, I think I can do this one more day. I think I can do this one more day. You know, I can just yeah, trying to tough it just out. open the door, just open the door, man. It was that bad. Like, so I just had to get up. And so I think at the time I talked to Double Fine and LucasArts. Okay. That was your short list of, of people that were like in the area you, you wouldn't have to move to. Yeah, exactly. There weren't that because I wanted to stay in the area at the time because, you know, I love San Francisco. Yeah, you know, I wasn't going to commute to the South Bay and have like a two and a half hour commute in traffic every day each way. I was like, this, I'm not doing it. No. And so like those were kind of like the two on the list. And, and I talked to Double Fine for a while, but they were in a spot where like, well, we got to get this project signed before we can open the position. We can't just hire you. And then the offer came from LucasArts, you know, and I was going to work with Clint there. And so that offer came through and I was just like, I got to get out. It was just like, it was kind of frying pain into fire in a way. I mean, LucasArts wasn't like that sort of depressing and toxic thing. I don't give that impression, but it was anywhere but here, anywhere but here. I just, okay. I have to get out. I have to be away from here. Sure. Like, it's, I don't care what it is. Like, I, I got to get out. So that's, so that's the first time I ever quit a job. And like, in my, and, that, and that's what I was saying earlier is that like my mental state and my life was so wrecked by that experience. It was just, it was ruining my life really. Like it was so bad. I wonder how it felt when you gave your resignation and when you were out of there, right? Like, holy shit, I'm out. It was hard to quit because I wasn't, I didn't give a shit about quitting on the people who I, you know, w was in conflict with, but I still had a team and I, and I felt this terrible sense that I was betraying them or leaving them to the wolves or letting them down, or quitting on them or whatever. I mean, like I said, like, when I told people I was like trying so hard not to just break down bowling, you know, like it was so hard because it was, it was the people that I shipped Bioshock 2 with. So it's people I knew uh, okay. I liked working with and that I used to love working with and, and nothing I, had changed with them or me you knew or us. You, you work well together, right? You knew when the conditions, yeah. under the right conditions, you could make some magic. Yeah, exactly. So we'd spent a year just having that ripped apart in this situation that was, that was just set up badly. It was really hard telling people. And like, I remember like on my last day, they didn't used to do this, but they asked me if I could say something to the team on my like last team meeting day. Cause we used to do team meetings on Fridays. I mean, I was so choked up. I could barely get through it. Cause I was, and I didn't know what to say. I rambled. Like I didn't, I didn't expect <laughs> it either. They didn't tell me I was gonna make a speech. So they kind of put me on the spot and I'm sitting here so emotional. They should have given you time to prepare. If, if, if it was yeah, kind exactly. of a situation where it's like, Hey, here's my two weeks. Okay. okay here's your last day. But maybe we would like you to say uh -huh. something. Yeah, exactly. So like writing that last email, right? I, you're given a bunch of time to write that last email usually. Yeah, exactly. Because I like I remember I remember hugging my my boss, my lead designer there, a guy named Zach McClendon, who was a just an amazing mentor to me on Bioshock Two, and he'd gone into a different project when I was on XCOM, but he was my mentor there on Bioshock Two, and was also sort of informally still trying to support me and, and mentor me, you know, while we we're on separate projects and stuff like that. And you know, he meant a lot to me. He, he taught me so many great things, and he's the person I work for who I wish like more people knew. In terms of like, when I tell people I work with Harvey, like, oh, I heard of him. He did Sonnet. He did Deus Ex. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And he hired me out of school. He's my men first mentor. And then like, but Zach McClendon, he was the lead, lead designer of Bioshock 2. And just like a really smart designer, great mentor to me in terms of personal stuff, personnel stuff, management stuff, problem solving. Like you just. The whole bag. Yeah. He was, he's a big influence on me. Yeah. I love giving mentors a shout out, right? Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, knew, I knew Harvey Smith. I didn't know. Zach McClendon. So that's dope. But I remember like on my last day when I was like that time, you're like, okay, I'm walking out of here for the last time. You know, I gave him a big hug and I remember ne neither one of us could actually speak because it was, it was so, we were both like, 
if I open my mouth, it's, it's going to be an ugly cry, you know? So like we, I remember just having this long hug that was just like, all we could do was just nod and be like, we, we were just kind of nodding. Like, I know, I know, you know, like we, we yeah. didn't have to say it, you know, but no it was, it was, it was really hard. So, but as soon as I was like, I don't have to go to work on that project anymore. Yeah. Free as a bird, man. Free as a bird. What was your personal life like not being in there, right? It rebounded because I mean, like my, like I didn't like hit bottom in terms of developing substance abuse or like, you know, Thankfully. losing my relationship or, or, or anything like that. Thankfully. Yeah. But it was just like, I was depressed. I was a depressed person for a year. Just like no joy. I don't know how you be not excited to do stuff. It's got to suck your creative muscles as well. Right. Like we just have Awful. no passion. Mm -hmm. Awful. Yeah. When you have job. nothing, you feel like you can apply it to it's, it. It's just horrible. Just usually, terrible. So usually people kind of spin up something on the side, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to find. I didn't have the energy though. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't just frustration. It, it was, it was depression. It was like low energy. Don't want to get out of bed. Just want to come home and get back in bed. Don't enjoy things. Even on the weekend, just, it, it just sucked the life out of me, man. Ugh. So that's what I was saying kind of earlier that like people around me probably didn't know what I was going through and like how rough it was on me. And so that's what I meant when I was saying earlier that like, you know, ultimately you know, you're the one that has to make decisions if you need to protect yourself. It wasn't that I was looking for like, oh, let me go make more money or whatever. It was like, this job is eating me alive and then I can't make it. Yeah. And I yeah. got to get out and I had to get out. I, it's just like the only way out is out. Like there, there's, there's no, there's no fixing it here. I don't think it's going to get better. And it didn't, they had to make huge changes. You know, that, that's all I meant was just that like, you know, you're allowed to prioritize your own happiness if you're in a situation that's, that's bad for you. That XCOM shipped, right? Mm -hmm. I think the final name was like the Bureau XCOM Declassified. Oh, shit. Okay. I still don't understand it. He used the XCOM name. It was a completely different fiction. It was set in the 50s. It was all different alien types. Tactical third-person shooter. Yeah. It was not well-received. Okay, fair. But yeah, it was one of those things. It's like, hey, the fact that they got it out is, is the Yeah, I mean, like, like, there was, yeah, there was, they basically had to sort of make a lot of changes in the structure and bring in a bunch of new people hire new people. They changed the game. I mean, like what shipped was very different from what, you know, we were asked to work on. It was ultimately a salvage job to get it out. I respect the people who kind of took the mercenary work a bit to get it done. But you know, that's kind of what I said too, is like, I can't punch the clock. I can't work on stuff. I don't yeah. believe in. You, you know, did I call can't. that out in the early, early on in the conversation. You did call that out. Let's yeah. move on to the greener pastures of LucasArts. You, you got your reset that you so desperately needed personally, creatively, mentally, yep. physically, spiritually. And you have a colleague in Clint Hawking that mm -hmm. you're excited to work with. Yeah, or is so, it IP so, or just the fact anywhere but here and in LucasArts? I mean, there, there was there was definitely anywhere but here, but like it was also attractive. I think I want to say I met him maybe around 2005. I definitely had met him at GDC. In the sort of mid-2000s, he was doing a bunch of really interesting GDC talks. Totally. The first one I saw was one called The Interesting Thing About Bishops. All his talks are usually money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So The Interesting Thing About Bishops, which was sort of a talk about stealth and Splinter Cell games. I remember seeing that and be like, holy crap, this guy is so smart and his thinking's different and da, da 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 And so oddly enough, David Kalina, who I don't know if you remember him from of Midway. Of course I remember David Kalina, man. Shout out to Dave, man. He, he yeah. put me on to one of my favorite authors, Juno Diaz. Yeah. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, nice. Man. Was he like head engineer, studio head at Tiger Style or something like that? Yep. Him yeah. and Randy. He was on the original conception team for Splinter Cell. There's a little five-man crew that came up with the original concept of Splinter Cell in like, what, 
maybe 2099, somewhere in there, because it shipped in, I want to say summer sales, like 2002, I want to say it came out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Dave went there to come work at Ion Storm in like, you know, late 2001 to early 2002, somewhere in there, like kind of, kind of like six or eight months before Splinter Cell shipped, he left and came to work at Ion Storm. So I knew him because, you know, he and I hit it off and we listened to music and go to shows together and blah, blah, blah. But he, you know, Clint was one of the other people on that team who had that original conception. So he knew Clint. And so I remember we used to all go to GDC all the time back then. So I went, I was hanging out with Dave and he was like, hey, I might go meet up with some of my buddies from the Splinter Cell team, which was like Neil Alfonso. I used to think Dave was so cool, man, because he'd walk around with that iconic Sam Fisher, you know, the three neon eyes kind of goggle thing. I mean, mm -hmm. oh man, this guy worked on Splinter Cell, yeah. Stealth, and he's an he AI was one of the original, Yeah, one of the original conception team on that you know Hell he helped yeah. invent it and so and so i knew him and so i ended up meeting clint through that group just because they all got together and and you know clint of course big fan of the immersive sims and deus ex and stuff like that so we had a lot in common so i just knew him as as like a designer whose whose gdc talks had inspired me who'd worked on some cool games especially chaos theory you know mm -hmm. that, that game was Fuck, yes. freaking great amon tobin soundtrack still still hits slaps and so and so basically i was like oh well he's down there lucas hearts is trying to do this turnaround they signed Clint. I know Clint as a friend, you know, like I'm, I'm like, that sounds good. LucasArts was like a five minute drive from where I lived. Cause in the Presidio Perfect. of San Francisco, nice office building. I mean, a freaking window desk, like looking out of the Presidio, walking to fancy restaurants for lunch, you know, like it was, it was, uh, it's a complete 180 basically. Yeah. It was idyllic. And we were there, like me and him and Matthias Work, who you know, was three man sort of like design brain. And we were there to like create a new concept. You know, we're LucasArts, so we knew it was going to be within Star Wars, but mm -hmm. we were like part of this team just trying to come up with a new, obviously not new IP because the Star Wars, but like a new franchise or, or concept within that, you know. Like um, you had a lot of free reign. It didn't have to be oh, yeah. one particular thing in this setting, no, this oh, no, time, no. this style. No, not at all. We were all over the place trying to figure out like. <laughs> it's the gift and the curse of carte blanche, right? To be like. Yeah, exactly. Hey, make us a cool game, right? Like, yes, but fuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But can you give me a little game? It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's like you said, right? Like you want some direction. You, yeah. You give us some direction. Let us know what you're thinking about. Yeah. Like the, the metaphor I like to use for like direction and stuff. One example of direction is just, you know, like, you know, when you go to a bowling alley and if you got kids, they could raise the bumpers in the lane so that you can't throw a gutter ball. So I think of it like that. It's like, I, I'm going to raise the bumpers. So I know the ball is going to get to the end somehow. I don't know what course it's going to take. I don't know how many pins it's going to hit. Yeah. I can prevent you from throwing a gutter ball. So I probably, yeah. I can keep you from throwing a gutter ball. Whatever happens in between there, that's up to you. So like, that's. Raise That's a bumper. metaphor that I like. Yeah, 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 so, raise the bumpers. Let us not fail miserably and get shut down or get canceled, right? Like, give us some direction of what you want. Yeah, exactly. So basically, yeah, we just did that for a while. And there were two other projects in the building. There was that 1313 project that, you know, has kind of like, at this point, leaked enough that everybody knows about it. And then there was another team working on a multiplayer first-person shooter. I don't know if it's officially going to be a Battlefront game or not, but it was you know, a Battlefront style Mm -hmm. competitive first-person shooter team-based type thing that's what rattan was on for a while did you guys overlap when when he was over there and you yeah you we were there overlap? at the same time but different teams we, we were up on the same yeah different teams so down the road so we were doing conception and we were like okay we're going to build a team this and the other we started trying to find people to hire for the team and a couple times we found somebody and the studio was like well these other two games are shipping before y'all. So we need to have that hire go to those teams. But y'all can just wait and keep working on concept. 
And I kind of realized after a while that like our game, best case scenario was not going to be out for like five years. Like I was like, cause the studio priorities, these two other games and we can't even really get our hires sometimes, which you know, I get it. Studios got to allocate people to where they think, you know, whatever. Right. Like, so I'm, I'm not like, this isn't sour grapes or anything. It was just kind of slowly dawned that that was the reality. Quick question for you about that. Mm -hmm. I've seen studios grow from one to two projects and that be a Herculean effort, you know, mm -hmm. but it's important for the lifeblood of the studio, right? To have something that your team could look forward to, to roll on to, and then, you know, rinse and yep. repeat and roll that wheel. I've never seen the three project studio formula <laughs> really su succeed. Yeah. I don't know that I have either when, when I think about it. I've been to two project places. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a three. I hope someone listening could prove, prove, give me the, the exception or the formula or something, but I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if it, if it has been done outside of like the huge publishing houses on like, you know, sequel or iteration four or five yeah. or six. Right. Which even then though, even then it's kind of like you, 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 you go from two project studio to like being part of a huge thing that's got seven projects worldwide or something like that. Like there's not, yeah. like, that reminds me of something that, that Matt Booty described to me this one time about like. Matt Booty, isn't he of, like president of Xbox Studios yeah, now? Yeah, he, well, he was the president of Midway for a little while at the end, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, used after, to love getting those booty calls, man. Like, hey, dial into the booty call. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell us yeah, how the Zucker, company's going. After Zucker was out, that was his name, right? Zucker, David Zucker. After he was out, um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was, he was kind of like the turnaround artist CEO. It wasn't actually from games who got pulled in, but mm -hmm. I digress. But he described to me one time, he said, you know, he was talking about sort of studio budgets and project budgets. And he was saying, you know, like a project budget can get up to, you know, or a studio budget can get up to like a certain point, like call it like $50 million. Mm -hmm. He says kind of like electron orbits. He's like, when you look at a, you know, that first ring of electrons has two and I'm going to get the science wrong, but like <laughs> you, then the next one, you know, the next one's got like four or six or whatever it is. And he's like, but it's not like it goes from two to three to four to five to six. It's at two and you can build up all this energy, but it's still two. And then it takes this huge amount of energy to jump and finally get one onto the next ring and, and start to go. Mm -hmm. And he kind of described it like you can have a $50 million game, but you don't really have the 60 and then the 70, then the 80. He's like, you kind of go from 50. You've kind of got to just be able to jump to 150. You know, he's like, there's yeah, this electron yeah. orbit. It's not incremental. It's very stair-stepped. And so sure, sure. I wonder if that's it with studios. Like you can't go from two to three, three to four, four to five. It's kind of like you got to go two and yeah. then you've got, got to either make this huge leap into something else or maybe get bought into a bigger system. Yeah, but you yeah. can't just incrementally that's escalate. Awesome. I don't know. That's no, a great visual. I, I've said it, right? I've, I've thrown out the quadruple A development project, right? AKA like some Assassin's Creed or some mm -hmm. GTA or something like Rockstar, that. Rockstar, yeah. Yeah, because because it's a whole extra madness of production when it becomes this multi-studio effort, 24-7 development across the time yeah. zones and so many different moving pieces and almost too big to fail, right? Like we're going to get the yep. shit out the door, do or die, cancel what we got to cancel. I've jumped onto the team that's already on this thing and it's moving too fast. I've never been part of a transition as it evolved into that. Yeah. I mean, how we got on that. <laughs> we were talking about you guys were the third project and you were seeing oh, that yeah, yeah. these two projects were kind of consuming all the resources and you had at least a five year runway yeah. before maybe getting out. Yeah. I kind of realized like best case scenario, it's going to take five years before a game comes out. Like if everything breaks right, that's just the time it's going to take to go from three dudes spitballing at a whiteboard 
to a thing on a shelf, right? Like it takes so much team building time, prototyping, iteration, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's five years. That seems like a fun job where you can just kind of whiteboard game ideas with a small team for however long. Curious, how long would you be able to kind of keep that up? I can tell you eight months was my maximum. That's a long run, man. Yeah, well, no, well, I, I, I didn't even last that long, though, because we finished Bioshock 2 in late 2009. And then they actually just held it until early 2010 because said, we don't want to release it into this window. We finished it too late. So it's set. We were done. It sat in the warehouse for like three months and came out in like February of 2010. And so by the time it came out, we were already long since working on the XCOM game. And so 2010, I spent that whole year after finishing, accomplishing nothing creatively, being depressed, being in the pits, the whole deal. So then, you know, I got to LucasArts in sort of March of 2011. At this point, it's been over a year since I've been like, had my teeth into something I'm creatively engaged in and driven by. And so at first, of course, concepting a new game, sky's the limit, Star Wars, like, oh shit, oh my God, I'm a kid in a candy store. Yeah. But when, but when I started realizing that, you know, we weren't getting the resources, this would be a really long road. We're so early in conception. And you'll be coming in for days and like, you can't, you can only do so many days in a row where you're just <laughs> spitballing ideas and throwing something like, and when it's three brainy ass designers doing this, it's not about like, oh yeah, what's the. What's the reload mechanic going to be? It, it, this is some galaxy brain shit every day <laughs> about like reinventing storytelling in games and making distributed storytelling where everything goes to a server and the story's changed every day by actions from people in other games. I mean, just the wildest, you know, so, so it's just like this galaxy brain stuff. Would you have benefited from having engineering people or the art, art, art thing, right? Kind of give you some wrang wrangle you. Yeah. Well, at that point you're, you can start making stuff and start putting on screen. Like I'm a, I'm a make it with your hands, put it on the screen and iterate like, like enough talk, you know, like that. I'm that kind of guy. So even within like probably three or four months of being there, you know, I, I can only do that whiteboarding stuff so long and I got just so unfulfilled. So I literally went to the other team and it's funny because I've said a bunch of times, I'm not a good level designer and it's still true, but I went over to that, to the battlefront team. I was like, Hey, do y'all need any help with anything? Cause I got to do something. I got to work on something. I don't yeah. know what it is. And they're like, you could, you know, make us another map for us to play test, you know, like a, a deathmatch map, like a team deathmatch map. I was like, I'm on it. <laughs> so I got on the Pro 4 server and I would sit there and like, you know, we'd spitball for half a day. And then the other half of the day, I put my headphones on and build a level for that Battlefront game. Yo. I wasn't good at it. It wasn't a very good level, but I was making something and I had to make something, man. I mean, that game got canceled and never shipped. After doing that and being like, I'm keeping myself busy just to keep my sanity. Yeah. Because our project's not really going anywhere fast and i just you know at that point i was coming up on a year and a half since i'd been working on bioshock 2 and i was just like i can't have the seven and a half year gap best case scenario because i was like well if i get two years into this and it gets canceled then it's just all just you know it's one thing if i was like super engaged and believing in it but you know it was it was just you know kind of like pie in the sky for so long so i started being like where can i go i just want to work on something that i care about i just want to like be engaged. I want to make something. Mm -hmm. I looked around and there just weren't any companies I was interested in. And at the time, my wife had been kind of unhappy in, at her job. So we'd been saving up money. Yeah. In, in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And yeah. in, in San Francisco, because we didn't want to move. We liked the area. And she had been kind of unhappy at her job for a while. So we had started putting away savings because she was going to quit and, and do some consulting. And so we we're like, let's build a nest egg. So we were saving, we were watching our money. We called it like our austerity plan. We like stopped eating out. We, you know, like we you know, cut back our budget. So we didn't start saving money. And so we had this nest egg. And then over time, I started getting more and more sort of like unfulfilled. And in terms of my job of just like 
not thinking it was going to ultimately have a chance of success and seeing the other teams get the resources and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, she started really liking her job again. Okay. And so we got to a point where it's like, well, there's no studios I want to work for out there. I'm just frankly getting pretty bored and I just want to make something and be engaged. You're happy. We got this nest egg. I was like, what if I use it instead? I was like, what if I quit and go indie? So that's how I ended up going indie and starting working on the novelist because there was just no other option. Like I, like I never had a dream to be an indie designer. It was never like a goal. I never wanted to like go off and make my own thing. Yeah. I just wanted to work on something that I cared about and that I believed in and that was fulfilling. Shout and it, at that point, it had been like a almost two years at that point. And I was like, I'm losing my mind. I have to, gotta, gotta I have to work on something. Uses. Shout out to Christine yeah. for supporting yep. her man on his indie yep. adventure. That absolutely. I mean, that's why, I mean, her name is the title of credits. She gets all the respect, all the credit. I didn't know what I was going to work on. I was like, I quit and I'll figure it out. I was like, you know what will get me to figure it out? Watching that bank account go down uh, every day. You got a, you got a clock, right? You got a runway, a finite yeah. runway. And yep. I guess you you, you kind of know your burn rate. Yeah, that's the liberating constraint is watching that dollar amount go down. I had heard about the novelist. I kid you not. I had mm -hmm. heard about the novelist in game talks books, interviews, what have you, right? Indie success stories. And I fucking kicked myself that I, for some reason, somehow I didn't know it was yours. I didn't know your name was tied <laughs> to it. No fucking clue. Which is it. actually, that's kind of dope, actually. Like, yeah. Cause you know, I don't want to be egotistical like that and be like, oh, it's Kent Hudson's the novelist. It's like, no, I just put it out there. It's like, it ain't my face on the website. You know, yeah. I, I just want people to play it and enjoy it. Yeah. Like, like that's uh, uh, Sid Meier is always somebody I credit as kind of like one of the people I look up to in this space. And, mm -hmm. you know, that fool's name sold those games, right? Like Sid Meier's Civilization, yeah. whatever. People people come to look for it. If your name was attached to this thing, you know, I de it definitely would have meant something different for me personally. Like, yo, got to right. check this out. Got to hit him up, see what's up. I came across it just by happenstance reading one of these novels talking about game industry, game teams. Mm -hmm you know, doing things. And it came up, it was like, Kent Hudson's the novelist. I'm like, Arr! you know, and then that's when I kind of go <laughs> knocking down doors and, and bothering people I know. After I do the Google investigation, I'm like, yo, where the hell's Kent now? Come to find out you're a fucking brass line. I'm like, yo, what? Crazy small world. I hit up everybody I know at brass line. I was like, yo, can I get me this guy's email or pass him a message? <laughs> I got to catch up with him. Uh, and, and that's how we ended up here. Second thing, Ben Rattan came on the show mm -hmm. and he dropped your name. He was like, yo, who do you want me to interview? And he was like, yo, bring Kent Hudson on the show. I'm like, perfect, That's man. really funny. Serendipitous, all things aligning. I need to talk to the dude. Ben nominates you. Another full sailor. We roll thick as thieves. We're like cockroaches in this industry. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're all out there and latched on. But I don't know. It's hard to pin down anybody and be like, oh, I can see you branching off and being an indie developer, building your own game mm -hmm. or something like that. I think everybody's got it in them. You know, push comes to shove. If, if, mm -hmm. if they got a, a nice nest egg to try to go spin out and, and do the damn thing, I think anybody who's got experience doing it can definitely do it if you can take somebody off the street who's never done it and, and see those types of success stories. But mm -hmm. I love this story, man. You, you're like all these games under your belt, and the constraints that you were thrown in where it's like, yeah, I'm not trying to move. Nobody else that's around me is doing anything worthwhile, interesting. Fuck it. I'm gonna go do it my damn self and tell me about the novelist and, and what came out 
and and key decisions made and and times Man. you remember fondly. You know, what, what did he even build it on? Unity. That's the quickest answer you'll get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a, um, like I said, like when I, when I quit, I didn't have any idea. I had no concepts. I mean, like, like every designer, I've got a notebook that's got 50 half-ass ideas, you know? Oh, what about this? What about that? Well, like the novelist didn't exist in my head, but I had done a GDC talk in 2011, like while I was at LucasArts about this idea of like player-driven stories. Cause I'm really not into linear games, like really sort of cutscene heavy, you know, frustrated writer, watch my cutscenes, <laughs> and, 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 and the gameplay is secondary type of games. It's not that that can't be done well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certainly games that have very strong narratives and very strong stories and, and stuff like that, but games are interactive. Games can do stuff that no other medium can do. Yeah. So I don't understand why we're going to waste our time copying other stuff, like do the stuff that only we can do, which is the social aspect, the interactive aspect, letting the player be part of the story or input into the systems, et cetera. And so I'd done this talk about how could you make player-driven stories? And it was a very sort of like, it was an inspirational track. It wasn't practical. It was like a theoretical, like a use self-determination theory as a framework for like, how can we do this? And it was a very like pie in the sky, hoity-toity, like academic-y sort of GDC talk yeah. that I just did because I was like, it's interesting and I want to inspire people to think about this differently. But, you know, it, it was done just for that reason because I was just frustrated. I was like, I'm sick of these type of games, man. Like, can we do something different? And so when I start, when I went into, I prototyped a bunch of different stuff, like little puzzle games and like stuff like that, just mostly learning Unity because I'd never used it before. So part of it was just kind of learning how do I do this? How do I do that? How'd you like it compared to all the other tools you used? I loved it. I still love it you know, for, for what it's good at. Like it struggles at scale, right? Like sure. it struggles at scale and it struggles. Sure. I always say that, yeah, if it's a team that you can count on one hand, you guys can work in unity pretty nicely. Yeah. It's as soon as, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, as soon as it gets bigger than that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I made two games in it in five years and love it. So I was just learning and stuff like that. And then I started like, I couldn't figure out any concepts or any that really grabbed me, you know, like I had a lot of ideas. And finally I, I kind of challenged myself basically. I was like, man, you just did this GDC talk about like trying to be experimental and trying to push things forward narratively and stuff like that. And here you are with the one chance in your life, you get to make whatever the hell you want with nobody telling what you do. There's no publisher, there's no funding, you do whatever you want. And it's like, you're an idiot if you don't try to cash that check that you wrote. Yeah. It was basically like, put your money where your mouth is, like literally. The first thing I did was like, and this is kind of in a, I also did a postmortem talk about it in 2014. So some of this is in that as well. But like the first version I did was like a narrative simulation where you had six characters in this house and you could make them meet or you could share information between them and all this. And it was just nerdy and there was no drama to it. There was no story to it. There was no relationships to it. It was just like a simulation of relationships. And it was just, it worked. I worked on it for three months. And at the end I was like, I was like, this is pointless. I was like, I'm just smelling my own farts here. Like I'm amusing myself by making the simulation, but it doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's like simulations are easy. It's easy to just do math and move things around and simulate force. Like that's easy. I was like, but this doesn't freaking mean anything. Mm -hmm. And so I threw it away and started over. And I said, I need to find a scenario that just everything comes built in. I don't have to explain anything and I can get to what I want to do, which is letting the player have stories that actually mean something to them. Mm -hmm. How can I strip this down as far as I can from these like six strangers in this big house? And so I was like, well, the concept of a family is universal. Mm. Everyone knows what a family is. Even if your family looks different or isn't two parents and a kid or whatever, like everyone knows what it's like to be a kid because you were one, right? As universal as it gets, just a family unit. Okay. How many people should be in the family? It's like, how small can I make it? You know, people have done relationship games, but that's it. It's just a two-way street. There's no, 
You're choosing one of the others, binary. I was like, okay, you had a third, and now you got that that triangle, sort of the Much smallest. More complex, that rock, paper, yeah, scissors. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, let me make a rock, paper, scissors, but it's families, relationships, different types of relationships. And so I kept just grinding at that. When I came back to the narrative part of it, I was like, okay, it's easy to make a simulation, but how do I make a story? And so I basically had to say, okay, all I need is a starting scenario and then a framework for you to make decisions and push the story forward. So the starting scenario, you know, was like, okay, marriage is on the rocks, dude's career is on the rocks, the kid's having trouble in school. So you kind of show up with conflict built in and you get that in the first like chapter of the game, you learn all of that. My goal was I'm going to put you, the player, you're the author of this. I'm not going to make a branching narrative because it's like branching narratives have been done before. And like, they're only degrees different from linear media. I was like, you're still at every point saying the author's going to give you this choice or this choice. And this goes here, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. It has multiple paths, but it's still scripted. Yeah. So I was like, I want to make a small narrative engine. What I did was I, I simulated the relationships between the people very, very simply. And actually to make someone happy or sad or neutral. And then I was like, how can I force myself to not get in the way and not have authorship in this story. So one of the first decisions I made was I'm going to make nine chapters to this story and they're going to come in random order. Sorry, the intro and the exit are, are both set. So the middle seven come in any order. Yep. And so I was like, okay, I couldn't tell a story if I tried because I don't know if this is going to happen before this or if this is going to happen before this. It's different for everybody. So it's like I tied one hand behind my back personally in making it to make sure that I could not imprint on the game. Oh, then, you know, I, I was like, how do I do this? What's the structure of a chapter? How do I, you know, make decisions? You make a one chapter carry forward so that it still comes because I was like, you can make nine individual chapters, but they have to blend into a story. So I was like, okay, what tricks do I have without knowing what order this is going to happen mm -hmm. to make this into a story that means something to, to someone? So when they go back to say, first this happened, but then this happened, I felt bad about that. So then I did this in the next chapter, make it a linear thing in their head, even though I don't even know that order. So. The game's just full of a lot of little tricks to do that. Each chapter, when you make a decision, it kind of centers on a certain object. So like in one chapter, you know, maybe the kid wants you to go fly his kite with him and the wife wants you to help her with like some flyers for her art show and the dad's got to turn in a chapter for his book or whatever. So like if you choose the kid, then in subsequent chapters, his kite is on the wall above his bed mm -hmm. because he has that memory of a happy day. And so every time you go in his room now, you're like, oh, I remember the time I took him to fly the kite. If you don't choose the kid, it's like tossed under the bed in the far side of the room and you can see it hanging out from under the bed for the rest of the game. And you're like, damn, yeah. every time you go in his room, you're like, you remember that you didn't take him out to fly his kite. And so I use the objects you choose to tell a little bit of that story, even though it comes in different order, I can leave that history through the house, for example. So I did a, a ton of stuff like that. And the point was just, I want to ask you the same question nine times and whatever pops out at the end of this thing, you found out what your values are. So it's basically, you know, career versus marriage versus parenthood. Oh. And I ask you a, a conundrum in each chapter that is unsolvable. You cannot please all three characters. You have to let someone down. And if you play well, you can make someone kind of say even, you know, and, and not be too disappointed. But every time you've got to make a hard decision. And I was like, at the end of nine chapters, you're going to know. If you prioritize the marriage over the career, you've now learned something about yourself. And I didn't tell you that. I didn't even give you branching choices. Yeah. I just asked you a question these times. And so... It was basically just a project where I was like trying to really make it about the player and not me, you know, it's, and, and I took, I, I tried to take as much out the ship away from myself as I could to just make it about me putting these questions forward. And like every player has a different answer and every player has like a different story through it. It's, it's powerful, man. I heard nothing but great things and, and very emotional, right? It's 
games have this power to really make you feel something, right? Because you have choice and you can affect how the story unravels and what you take away from it, right? I'm glad you made those decisions where it's not just kind of something force-fed to you that you step through and you're like, oh, those characters, I either felt them or I didn't. It's like, no, you are the character. You're driving Mm -hmm. these relationships forward. How do you feel after the fact? What you released, how it was received, the money generated off of it? My feeling about it has evolved over time because like it was a very polarizing game when it came out, which was really, really difficult, uh. really, really hard to deal with. Like, I'll never forget the day that it came out and all the re- reviews hit in my head. I had it built up because you sp- I spent you know 22 months of my life on that game yeah. and it's everything to you. I mean, when you're working on a game by yourself like that, it's what you think about night and day. I mean, I had days where all I could do was just lay on the floor face down and like I was like, I can't figure this out. I paint myself into a corner. I didn't know how I was going to get out of. But you got to keep going. You can't quit. Like you can't be like 18 months into like, yeah, I'm just going to toss all that money that we spent. And like, I'm not going to ship this. Like you have to go, like there's no, so like it's super hard and super difficult and super challenging. But you put everything you have into it. You know, it's, it's what you, it's what you live for, for that period of time. And like, there was times where I was so stressed and blocked and like stuck where I didn't think I could move past it. The only way that I would get through it and be able to get to sleep at night was I would tell myself when I'm laying in bed, trying to go to sleep. Only to myself, I wouldn't say to my wife, obviously. <laughs> but I would, I would tell myself, I was like, I would tell myself, I was like, it's okay, you can quit tomorrow. When you wake up tomorrow, you can quit. Okay. And you can just go do something else. You have and go get a job. And I, and I let myself quit at one in the morning. And then when I wake up the next morning, I'm like, man, I'm not quitting. You know, like, oh, it would, yeah. I, it would, I would let myself this. off the hook to get to sleep. Yeah. And then in the morning, I feel better. So, like, I had, you know, I had to have those moments. But, you know, when it came out, it was everything to me, you know, like I remember the first review that hit was GameSpot and it was a 7.5 and I felt like it was a two. It devastated me. What would have made you happy? What was the number you wanted to see? It sounds wild, but like, I mean, I wanted only nines and tens. Like, yeah. All I wanted. Like, oh, yeah. You, want you the, build you it want up for so long. Yeah. Yeah. You build it up for so long. So like that's 7.5. And like, I didn't have the perspective to see that like. I made a game in my apartment by myself. I mean, I had collaborators for voice acting and my, my friend's studio did the 3D art assets. So like, I'm not saying by myself, but 95.22% by myself. I actually know that number. Wait, I'm going <laughs> to ask you about that. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. The thing people don't realize is like, when you work in a studio or you work on a big game, there's a million people that work on these things. The vast majority of us out of your control. Other people can make mistakes that mess things up or that make things better. But like when a game comes out, you know what your part was in it. But like if it's not received or whatever, it's so easy. Back, like, yeah, well, if that person had made that decision, it would have been a lot better. Da, da, da. You can let yourself off the hook so easy. Yes, as we do. As we do. Yeah. When it's just you, <laughs> you're like, anything, anything good about it? Thank you. Yep. Anything bad about it? Oops. Yep. It's all on you. So your accountability is total, which is pretty great especially after sort of the projects that I come off of that were unsatisfying for different reasons. I kind of embraced that. Like I remember working on it being like, you know what? Even the mistakes are my own and that's fine. If I mess up, it was me that messed up. Like, that's cool. Like I'm fine with that. Yeah. I just want to make my own mistakes, you know? Hell yeah. It's kind of liberating, right? It's got to be kind of liberating Absolutely. and freeing to be like, I got no one to blame but me and, mm-hmm. and live with those, live with the consequences of your decisions. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So like there's a lot of freedom in, in that, but it's also extremely vulnerable, you know, like you're, you're putting this out for the world. And like, as you know, the steam forums and like the general internet is a toxic place. It's one thing to work on a game that gets a backlash or has people who are disappointed or whatever. But when it's just like your baby, it all goes straight to your heart, like a dagger. So, you know, it was a super polarizing game. Like I got perfect scores 
I got nines. I did get nines, mostly from indie sites. Like nines, nines, perfect scores, won a couple of game of the year, things on smaller sites. Hell yeah. And I also got like threes out of 10 from people being like, this isn't even a video game. This artsy stuff doesn't belong. And like drag my Metacritic way down. So I, I got all these people who are like trolling on like, you know, game. this isn't even a game, this artsy bullshit, who just hate it on principle. Yeah. You know, yeah. and give you like a three out of 10, a four out of 10. So like that stuff is just like, and they don't realize like, you know, that's like my livelihood. Like I got to sell this thing, right? Like, so. In today's development scene, where not all games are created equal, budgets are different, right? I wish that we had categories to correctly compare these games. Like, hey, these games are built with this development budget or by this mm -hmm. many people compared to these games, right? Because it's kind of not mm -hmm. fair to put all these games mashed up against each other and weighed evenly. It's very different. I would, when I look at games like this, to be like, oh, this indie studio made this game. I'm going to treat it as such and be like, yo, this was a solid experience or effort, right? If, if you, but if you give it in the hands of hundred person plus team with this many dollars thrown at it, yeah, I would totally be way more critical of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, yeah. but I think most players out there don't give a fuck, right? It's just like, I paid yeah. for this game and it failed to meet my expectations, right? Like, God damn. Which on some level is fair. Like you're asking for their money. Ultimately, like if someone's got a bunch of choices for what they can spend $9.99 on mm -hmm. and there's some game that was $9.99 that was amazing and, you know, changed their life or whatever. And another one doesn't, they're like, you know, that is a comparison. But yeah, like I had a folder of like really nice emails that people sent me. Nice. And like, you know, I got emails, multiple emails from people who were like, I was in the middle of going through a separation or like a divorce in my life and playing this game helped me reconcile with my wife and we're back together now. Whoa. You know, like I, I it was like that. That's gotta make it worth it. So you get that one and you don't care quite as much about that, you know, whatever Eastern European site slagged on your game and said that said that art games don't matter and, and aren't games at all and didn't even play it before shitting on it. Like, you know, that God. that makes up for one review like that. No. Um, no. <laughs> but but yeah, so so getting those things from people and like talking to people who like, you know, like the number of views that said people like couldn't finish it because they were crying so hard and like stuff yeah. like that. I'm like, okay, it, it it hit them in a certain way. So like that, I, you know, that I'm proud of. And the more the more distance I get from it, the more it's like, you know, like I said, even we're talking about studios getting shut down or like losing years of your career in that way. Like, you know, those that's 22 months that I poured everything I had into it and it wasn't perfect, mm -hmm. but it's unique. There ain't nothing else totally. like it. There still isn't. That's what I'm talking about. There's nothing else like it. I can count on two hands. This is the number of games that kind of evoke such such a visceral response out of me. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. those games are special and 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 stand out from the crowd, you know. So yeah. all the props in the world can't for putting that bad boy out and 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 surviving it on the other end. I know there's a bunch of yep. people that wanted me to just drill deep on <laughs> the novelist yo you're talking it, it made enough to pay for the next one so that's all good hell you know? yeah so it's a success that, that was the goal like, yeah i mean it's a success that you finished it and shipped it and a success that it paid for itself recoup costs and paid for the next game yep that's hell right yeah and that's it still right. make it, it still brings in some money so get that check every month hell yeah which you got to divvy up i got to divvy up that's right yeah i got to divvy up i get 95.22 percent of each check Talk to me. I have a note here. <laughs> I have a note here that I, I got to ask because I don't have a lot of people that can talk to being a contract, a contract mm -hmm. worker. And a lot of people don't even know how to write up their terms or, you know, kind of just take the first thing that's kind of put in front of them. And I know you have a lot of experience here and insight, mm -hmm. uh, having had multiple contracts thrown at you and you turn them down or 
even to finish the novelist, I think you took a mm-hmm. few contracts. When I started, I, I was just living off savings and just slowly burning down that nest egg that we saved up to go in deep. And so I certainly didn't have money to like pay. Like I wasn't paying myself, so I couldn't pay someone else either. It was very much like I got this much time and that bank account's checking down. So the way I did it was shout out to Tiger Style. I asked them because they had similar circumstances when they made Spider. Mm-hmm. They weren't paying people either in terms of like a salary. And so what they did was they had just a profit sharing agreement with people. So everyone who worked on it worked under the same conditions. And so I sort of started from where they were and, and I don't think modified it that much and essentially just wrote up a contract myself. Like I didn't have a lawyer or nothing. I just wrote up something that covered as many cases as I could. And I wrote up a thing that just said, look, everybody who works on the game, no matter how big or small your part is or what your job is on the game, keep track of how many hours you work on it each day. I created a share, like a shared Google spreadsheet that just had like a column for each person and the dates. And it just said every day honor system, just log in and be like, yep, worked eight hours a day, worked six hours a day, worked five and a half hours a day, whatever it was. And everybody just logged their hours. And so when the game shipped, I just froze the spreadsheet and said, we're just going to divide it up by hours. That's how I know that I'd work 95.22% because I see that number every month when I have to do checks. I did the majority of it. So every, every month when we get the check, Basically, the contractor said, I'm going to recoup business costs first. Also logged all those. So like website hosting, that's this much a month, you know, so before it came out, I'd built up some amount of business expenses that were straight out of pocket for me. So I was like, I'm recouping that first and then we'll start sharing. So I, so I got a hundred percent of the money until those profits were, you know, recouped, which I want to say took three days of the game being out. Yo, fuck it. So yeah, that's how I did it. I did it was just equal sharing with everybody. That's like the most egalitarian version I've ever heard, right? I learned some lessons on that that I fixed for my second game. First mistake in the contract, you know, which I honored, it said this sheet freezes the day it comes out. I supported that game for like four more months, like actively. Oh shit. Day, fixing bugs, doing new options, like da, 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 like what what? And I was like, not getting extra credit for that. So, <laughs> so on near death on my second game, I used the same tempo, but I was like, this shit runs indefinitely. Like, you know, <laughs> if you're still working on it, you, you know, it, it still shifts. So like even today, like, you know, once a month I sit down and do profit sharing, it takes me about an hour. So I get an extra hour of work on near death every month. Mm. I mean, at this point it doesn't change much, but yeah. So, but yeah, it wasn't egalitarian. It was just like, look, I'm not trying to say anybody's work's more or less important. Everybody gets the even, gets the cut. Sure. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. You kind of shot yourself in the foot there. Absolutely. <laughs> Live I'm and done. learn. I'm done. I'm shipped the game. That's it. Like, nah, but yeah. you're never done yeah. in this space. You're not printing right. no discs in the digital space. That's right. I have notes here of figuring out your rate on a contract that I thought would be money. Mm. During both of the, the indie games I was working on, every now and then an opportunity would come up to just do contract work. Mm-hmm. Just, and just, like, I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but it was like, you know, just people I knew who were other companies, like, hey, you have a little time to do this. So it was, it was mostly consulting, actually, not contracting. It was like, you know, hey, come on Dishonored, for example. Like, Harvey was like, hey, we're like Alpha. Can you come and, like, come down to Austin? We'll put you in a room. You can play the game for three or four days. Like, play through the whole thing. Then give us a report of, like, you know, what you think. What should we change? We're at Alpha. We've got time to fix some stuff or whatever. So, like, I basically just went down there and played a whole bunch, wrote up a big report. And, you know, got paid a day rate, you know, whatever it was. And so I did that, you know, for different games. I did on Sonar 2 as well. I did it on, I did some work on Bioshock Infinite that was part contracting and a little bit of consulting, but mostly contracting, actually. Mm-hmm. A couple smaller things or whatever. But but point being, when I was indie, these opportunities would come along and each one's different. Each one's a different time commitment. Some of them, I, I gave a little more of a friend rate to like 
smaller companies that can't afford as much versus big publishers. You, you can get more usually. There's all this advice out there about like, oh, you know, you got to set your rate because whatever you set your rate at, you know, that's what you're known for. And like, you, you know, you got to set it high. So if you drop it, you're just degrading your, your rate. Or it's like, first off, companies don't talk to each other. So one company doesn't know what you can charge another one. But, but more to the point, like I found myself paralyzed by trying to make sense of it. Cause like, obviously like the higher your rate is, the more money you make. So of course that's what you want. But at the same time, you get to this thing where it's like, you know, I want $125 an hour. And they're like, oh, but we can only do a hundred. And it's like, well, I want 150 or like, like, at some point, these are just numbers. Yeah. That, like, you don't know where that line is. You're like, well, I do it for 125, but I won't do it for 100. Or I do it for 150, but not yeah. for 125. Like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't even know how I would make this decision. And so the thing that clicked and helped me sort of dial that in was essentially putting it not in terms of, of a dollar sign that you ultimately are. It's somewhat arbitrary. Like, obviously, is. higher is better, but like, but it's arbitrary. And instead, putting it in context of like opportunity cost. And what you give up versus what you gain. I think the cleanest example of this for me is when I was working on my second game, Near Death, I had found a composer I want to work with. He's, he's this artist who I really like some of his atmospheric ambient music. I was like, he's going to be perfect. I attempt the game with his songs and I contacted him. I was like, hey, at first I just was like, can I, can I just license some of your songs? I found like, you know, some of the ones that I like, can I just use them in the game and I'll pay you or profit sharing or whatever. I just reached out to him, you know? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. But he's like, you know, I'd also be interested in scoring it if, you, if you're up for that. He's like, I could write some original stuff. I was like, oh, damn, that, wow. I, you know, it's kind of caught me off guard. I was like, I didn't realize you, you even did that. Like he was, yeah. he was just an artist. I, I didn't know he'd done any composing. I think he'd done like one indie movie at the time. I think he's done more since then. But I was like, oh shit, that's a cool idea. I was like, that sounds pretty good. And we kind of went back and forth and he proposed like, well, if I do 10 tracks for you, maybe I could do it for this much money per track times 10. So if you pay me this much, I'll do the, the full thing. So we kind of had our own negotiation. I have no idea where he got his numbers from, but however it worked out, it was reasonable to me. And so right around the same time, Harvey reached out to me about doing that same consulting thing on Dishonored 2. And I literally had in my head like, okay, I need this much money to pay for this soundtrack. And I just got the opportunity to do this. And I was like, I don't even have this money in my bank account. Like I don't even know where I get the money to do that. But this contract, you know, if I take three or four days to go to Texas and, and consult on this game for a little bit, yeah. if I multiply it out, I'm gonna make this much, which is gonna pay off this much of this soundtrack. Oh shit, that makes sense. Cause I was six, eight months from shipping the game. So like, I didn't want to take three, four, maybe a week off of the game. Cause it's crunch time. Yeah. I'd be crunch time, like crunch hours by me, you're winning time. Like it's, you're closing. Mm -hmm. But I was like, what I'm doing is I'm trading this five days, maybe my schedule slips or whatever. This is the stuff that I'm not going to get to till next week. But when I get that check, I can basically deposit it, cut the check over here. And now I paid for the soundtrack. So for me, if I hadn't had that soundtrack thing on there, I probably would have been like, you know, honestly, I just need to keep my head down and finish my game. But when I put it in terms of if I do this, I lose five days, but I pay for most of the soundtrack. Yeah. Solves a big piece of the puzzle for my game. Then it became worth it. Because I could put it in value, like what's it mean to me? What's it mean to the project I'm working on? What value does it create? And then it wasn't about dollars and cents and is it the right rate or not? It was like, look, this is an opportunity here. It gets me this. It makes sense. I'll do it. You know, because I turned down other stuff that I didn't have that math. That helps, right? Like, hey, two weeks, three weeks, one month working on this contract equals mm -hmm. three months of runway for my indie project. Absolutely. I love that advice. When you told me that, that should definitely set off a light bulb to be like, yo, in making, determining your rate, right? As all mm -hmm. a lot of people out there have to figure out this magic number, right? At the bare minimum, it's like the time invested, what do you absolutely need? Or how do you want to invest that money into, right? Is it y'all mm -hmm. paying rent, feeding the family, paying for healthcare, yep. 
or is it like, yo, it puts me this much closer to this passion project or relocating mm -hmm. or moving to Hawaii or some shit like that, right? Yeah. When I took the contracting job on Bioshock Infinite, that was shortly after I had gone indie and it was straight up like, if I do this for one month, like I said, we've been on that austerity plan, tracking our budget, saving the money. So we knew our burn rate, like straight up. We knew we have this much money in the bank. We're spending this much a month. And so I knew how much we were burning a month. And so I said, if I do this for one month, yeah. it buys me five or six months. I, I forget what the math was. So it was a very clear picture of like, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to go to Boston in February yeah. across the country from my wife and just stay in like corporate housing to work on this. But if I do this month, it buys me five, you Yo. know, and, and that's when it was like, click, that makes sense. Totally. Bite the bullet, go do the thing. So, so that's all it is. It's really like, just, just put it in your own terms, understand what your opportunity cost is. What are you giving up? What are you getting? And it's got to make sense in, in ways that let you understand why you're doing it. You know, totally. like that's, that's where it comes to. Is there any other language or pro tips that you've learned to throw into contracts that like cover your butt after the fact? Yeah, I, I will say, and this is something my wife has helped me with huge because she's much more on the business and operation side of the industry mm -hmm. is don't look at a contract looking for the best case scenario, assuming everything's going to go right. Yeah. When you look at a contract, run scenarios in your head. What if this company goes on? What if turns out I hate the people I'm working with and I can't stand it? What if I go up there and the project is screwed and I can't even work on it? What if they come to me three months in and violate the contract? Mm. It's grim and it's dark, but like usually the stuff that I wish I'd done better, like even, you know, that profit sharing agreement on my first game versus how I modified it for my second game was all based on learning the hard way on some stuff. Like I, like I had a thing where there was an artist who I worked with early on near death who just flaked and just kind of disappeared and fell off the map. Shit. And I had given this artist the same contract as everybody else. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, and there was some like, this person flaked on me completely. And I was like, God, it's going to suck every month giving them profit sharing because they got this many hours on the game and produced nothing that I can use. I'm just carrying like this goose egg. And I was oh, so mad at shit. myself. And then, but then I reached out and I was like, look, can we just, can we just sever this tie? Can I just give you a lump sum? And so I, and so I gave this artist a lump sum and got in writing for both of us, addendum to the contract that says no longer allowed to do profit sharing or whatever. So, or no longer part of profit sharing all on the up and up. We both signed it Please. lump sum. Everybody's happy. Just cut the ties. Those are the ones, you know, look at it as. What if it doesn't go right? Like, like run the bad scenarios because that's what you need to be protected for. Like in a good business relationship, you sign the contract, you both sign it, and then you just put it in a drawer and never look at it again. Yeah. Because contract's only there for when shit goes bad. Nope. No one's ever, no one looks at the contract ever again. If you say, pay me this much, we'll work three months and it goes great. Yeah. Here's your check. It's great. Thanks so much. No one even knows where the contract is. So yeah. contracts are only there for when things go bad. So you really need to look at it from run a couple scenarios. Am I protected? Are they protected? Read the fine print. Okay. Who owns my work? Is there weird restrictions? Like, look at stuff that says, you know, weird non-compete that's often not enforceable. non-competes. Yeah, dude. That's the only time I look at contracts. It's like, hey, I'm leaving. What's this non-compete look like? Do I have to pay back yeah. any signing bonuses? What's the timeline? For yeah. That shit? yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, companies trying to scare you, this and the other, everything is negotiable. And it never hurts to ask. Like, if, if you're looking at a contract, you're like, this all looks good except for this one clause. I have a problem with it. Yeah. Ask about it. Like oh, yeah. the worst thing that can happen is to say, sorry, yep. we have to have that in there. We're not changing it. But you'd be surprised how often they'll be like, hey, is there a change you want to make? Maybe we could do something. You can get it. A, you can get addendums. You can get a change, like whatever. Yeah. Like 
just because it's on paper like that, that's lawyers write that stuff up. Like the people you're working with might be willing to, yeah, you know, it's make a thing, template, so. right? They usually have like a yeah. template. There's like, yo, we, we throw this to everybody mm-hmm. as a starting point. And usually mm-hmm. it's good enough for like 80% of the people. I like that, Kent. Yeah. And definitely everything is negotiable. And the more that I've been doing this is you stop looking so much at kind of that upfront base salary. You start looking on the back end thing, other things, you know, like profit mm-hmm. sharing and, hey, can I work on my own thing on the side? That's a huge one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they're not going to offer that upfront off the back. Yep. Right? You got to ask for that thing, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. But ne- never be afraid to ask. The worst thing that can happen is they just say, nope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Now, you know, and, and then that tells you a little bit about who you're working with. Cause if they're not reasonable, then that might give you a little bit of caution. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to ask. And now you've very much firmed up. Like if they're that firm there, they're probably going to f- enforce it as well. So like, it's, it's all information gathering. So like yeah. it, there's no, there's no harm in asking and you never know. Sometimes, sometimes they'll totally work with you on it. Yeah, dude. I like that. Right. And you know, if it's not listed, it's protecting you to get things in writing, right? To be like, yo, I want to be remote mm-hmm. or yo, I want it in writing that mm-hmm. I have this much time available for personal projects or something like that. Right? Absolutely. Hell yeah. Great tips, brother. Great tips. Where the hell are you at today? What's your role? What are you doing over there? What can you tell me about it? I'm the design director at a, a new startup called Brass Line Entertainment. Boom. And where are you located? We're remote. Like when the company started, the idea was to be, you know, one office in Montreal, one office in New York City. And it was like, <sighs> you know, this was early 2021. And we were like, oh my gosh, the pandemic's almost over. <laughs> you know we'll work remote for a little bit and then we're all gonna you know come to one of those two locations and then yeah. obviously the uh pandemic didn't quite end i signed on in like early april i started talking to manveer in in december of 2020 i guess it was mm-hmm. just exploratory then but but by like february march i knew i had to get out of ubisoft you know i started in 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 april there and i originally started actually on a six-month contract oh shit yeah yeah i was gonna start my own company and there's a perfect example actually what we were just saying Cause like I was talking to Mabir, just, I've known him forever. Like he, he's just an old friend, like from more than 10 years ago at this point. And Mabir is one of the founders, by the way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He's, he's one of the three founders. And so he's, but he's just a friend of mine from, from way back. You know, I'd known for a while, he was trying to get his company off the ground and, you know, slow going, because like I said, it's easy to get 95% way in the contract, but getting that last little bit can take forever. So I knew what was going on in, you know, late 20, was it late 20? Yeah. Late 2020, I guess. You know, he's like, hey, look, it looks like we're really going to sign, like for real going to mm-hmm. sign. You heard this for before. real, for real. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but then, you know, I don't know the exact timing, but I know that when I started talking to him sort of early 2021, he was like, yo, it's signed for real. It's on paper. Okay. We have the money. We are hiring. We're starting this thing. It's for real. And so I was like, that's great. Realized I was going to leave Ubisoft. I was I was thinking I was going to start my own company and here in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. And he yeah, was like, that's great. Cl- you did, did yeah, you? And he, he was like, he's like, you should do that. What, what was you saying? What was Ubisoft? Ubisoft was after uh what is it near death oh no near death i and then after that i did a year um working on uh narrative vr oh like i actually worked at oculus story studio oh shit yeah on a project called wolves in the walls vr which uh, will be on another hour if i talk about that it was dope though i mean that was that was a really that was a really great team i worked with there as well we we made a really cool thing we got it into sundance as an official selection which is like a career highlight oh um if you if you have an Oculus Quest two, I do, or just a or a regular Oculus Rift, check out Wolves in the Walls. Okay. It is it is really cool. It's like being in a Pixar movie, and it's interactive. It's interactive. It's really really cool. But I, if I start, I won't stop. So I'll I'll leave is it at it that. Based but on a definitely book? check that out. It's yes, yeah, based on a Neil Gaiman children's book. Oh shit! 
Okay. Yeah. So it is, it is super dope. Check it out. Um, very proud of it. And that was the second great team that I'd ever worked with. Shout out to everybody at Story Studio and Fable. Sweet. I'm, I'm glad I got that. I'm glad I got it's that. It's really good. It's really good. I, I don't want you to feel like I'm just glancing over that. I, I think we will definitely no, no, talk about that time. On, your, on your part two. <laughs> I know. I know we're at time. So yeah, we'll glance right off that. But yeah, basically near death was the second one. I had my, fr I had my kid two weeks after you shipped. Went to Akusori Studio, ended up working on Wolves in the Walls. After that, we decided we wanted to get out of San Francisco just because the city had changed so much. Came to Toronto, Ubisoft Toronto, quit there, started Brass Lion. And so Manvir was super cool. He's like, look, I know you want to start your own company, but we're getting off the ground. You've got a lot of experience. Why don't you just sign with us like six months? Just kind of help us however you want to help us, like to get started, like you're experienced. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can find stuff to work on. It was super upfront. He gave me a very favorable contract. He said, we'll just do a, a day rate. So instead of hourly or whatever, you just get this much for every day you work. And he's like, if there's days you need to take off to focus on your company stuff, that's cool. Take right. them off. Just let it give us, you know, give us a heads up. Don't just like show up in the morning and be like, I'm out. <laughs> he's like, give us a heads up. And otherwise, you know, they were like, we'll help you get your company started. He, he was, he was like, you know, we just went through it. We know all this stuff. We can hook you up with our lawyers. Like they were, so, it was completely up and up. They were like, help us out for six months while you're doing your company thing. We'll part as friends. That'd be great. Yeah. We support you as well. So they were, I mean, you know, the founders like of this company are like, it's wild how they're amazing human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were super supportive of this, but then, God, I, I mean, within three months of being there, I, I was just like, I ran out of excuses to leave. I was just like, <laughs> just, ah. I, I was just, just like, I love. Yeah. What were you telling yourself? You're trying to take, trying to find excuses to like, right, I got to go do, do my own thing. But it was, it was just like, I was like, what the, f yeah, I was like, what am I trying to do? I was like, cause you know, Brass Lion is a mission oriented company. And you know, my company was going to be like, I want to work on cool video games. Like that, like that was my mission. It was like, I want to work on stuff I like, yeah. you know, and Brass Lion is like trying to change entertainment yeah, man, and change the face of entertainment, yeah. what it looks like, who makes it. Um, and so you, when you go there, you feel like you've got this extra sense of purpose from it. Oh yeah. And to tell the stories that haven't been told by the people who haven't been able to tell the stories. Absolutely. Ooh. Absolutely. And the longer I worked there, the more I was like, just number one, like this is a special place with special people. Like, I mean, the, the team, the team that's assembled there is like, I just, I, every day I, I love being there. I love them. Like I said, like it's the third great team that I've ever worked with, but I think you have to ship something to put the stamp on it. So it's, sure. it's the third in progress. But I mean, it's, it's such a great crew of people. Hell yeah. It's just, a, it's just different. Like it's not just the mission. It's like the. I'm sure the energy is crazy. The energy is wild. Can't hurt to have the just empathy. Blaze in on those chats. I know you're oh a hip hop head. I'm a hip hop head, man. That is that is like the most fun part of it. Is like <laughs> just random. Like when, when we're in Zoom just calls, Blaze, man. The game developer. What? It is wild getting a DM on Slack from Just Blaze and be like, "Yo, you want to talk to me? What the fuck? <laughs> you know?" And like, or when, when you put something in the game and he thinks it's dope, you're like. Okay, I'm done for the day. I'm yeah, good. I'm good. Signing <laughs> off on that one. Yeah. And it's funny too, because he's like, so, he's so down to earth. And mm. so like, like he's a rock star, but he's not a rock star. You know what I mean? Like he like. I'm sure he's a creator, right? He just loves to create stuff. Oh, yeah. He wants to create stuff. With oh people. my God. And, and I'm sure to, to, to him, you guys are the rock stars. You know, like, yo, these people made games. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got to listen to them. Uh -huh. It is weird whenever, like, when he likes something that you worked on, you're like, yeah, but I mean, come on, man. Like you're, you, I'm just a game developer. Like, you, you know, like, you, like you don't want to believe it. And it's funny. Cause you know, he, you know, he works on the rock clock, as I like to say, like he's all hours in the lab, whatever. So 
he'll be like not on Slack for like three days. And all of a sudden, just in a random Slack channel, he'll be like, by the way, check out this little mix I put together. And it's like a headbanger. Like, oh, so like, you're just like, it's out of nowhere. So that's really cool. It's a great crew, not just for the mission piece of it, but like the work-life balance, the empathy, the support for employees, the support for families, everything about it, man. It's like, I've never worked somewhere like this before. And it's like, at this point, man, I'm 10 months in. The honeymoon's long since over. Like, True. this ain't just... This isn't, this isn't just like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're in that phase. It's like, no, it's, it's every day. It's like, a, it's, I don't know, man, it's a special place. And you haven't even met them it's, in person, uh, right? You haven't even all kind of been in the one, on the one roof yet. Nope. I actually, last week I was very fortunate. Um, me, so my wife is from Jersey and we went back to visit her family mm -hmm. for just a couple of days. Um, but you know, a good number of people at Brass Lion are from North Jersey and New York city. Yep. And so I was like, I'm going to be in town. Do y'all want to try to get together? And so we basically rented a, we rented a conference room at a hotel in, uh, in Hoboken and we're all vaccinated. We all tested on the morning of to like, make sure we're good. Like we did PCR tests. We're like, okay, we're good. We're vaccinated. PCR, yeah. we're all clean. Yeah. We show up and we have, and we all brought our laptops around the table. It was the first time you I've met any of them in person. Yeah. We worked together Wow, and it was. Magical. It was so cool meeting these people that I've like seen on the screen for 10 months. And so like, we want to try to do it again. Like we're, they we're trying to put all together felt like, like a, you were giant, bro. They were like, oh shit. Didn't think you were that they tall. They did. <laughs> I told them, that, was, that was the joke the whole day. Cause I told them before I was like, I, I was like, I'm tall, you know? And they're like, oh, whatever. But like, especially like my zoom camera at work is like on top of my monitor. Yeah. So it kind of looks down at me. So it makes me look small. Perspective. And yeah. like, Every time I stood up to like give somebody a hug when they came in the room, they're like, holy shit. And like, <laughs> we have tall people at our studio. Like there's multiple people who are like six one, six two, And they're like, Dave, you really are tall. And then, and then you, so guys, you got some was... short people as well, man. I know. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yes, we do. So that's got to be, I see some pictures. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yep, our, fr our, our, our friend Elaine coming into five foot nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, a powerhouse creative, man. A lot of passion. Yeah. Yep. It's a... Uh, it's a, it's, it is a super, super dope place. And we're, it hurts that like, not to be able to talk more about it because like nothing's announced. Mm -hmm. I don't even think who we're signed with is announced. So, like I, I gotta, I gotta I play that close to the chest, but it is, it's a cool, cool place. I feel, I feel lucky every day. Hell yeah. That, that's what I love, right? Hearing the journey from the ins to the outs, the highs, the lows, being fed up with shit. Fuck it, I'm gonna do my own thing because nobody else knows how to do the damn thing correctly. And then <laughs> finding a house that you can fit in on and be like, all right, mm -hmm. I'm gonna ride it out here. Like, all right, this this is this is home for the foreseeable future. And and that still kind of evokes that passion and energy mm -hmm. that you had when you were just getting out of Wake Forest and coming in at Ion Storm. That yep. is what is up, my friend. We gotta close it up. So I gotta bring you into the final round. I'm going to ask you some short questions, quick answers. How's that sound? Do it. What is the last game you finished? Finished. It's all the credits. It was either Subnautica Below Zero or Hitman 3. Both good ones. All right. I am the world's biggest Hitman fan. Like, I could do an entire another three hours talking about Hitman, just so you know, but I won't. That's something I learned about you that I did not know, right? I consider myself a big stealth AI designer, game player, mm -hmm. whatever the fuck, but I, I think I'm outmatched here. I would love to just fucking <laughs> talk about stealth and cat and mouse and chasing and following and, and compelling player fantasies in that space. For people that haven't played Hitman, mm -hmm. what is it about Hitman? I mean, part of it is just that it appeals to my like logical puzzle solving brain. Mm -hmm. 
but it's mixed with simulation because it's not scripted. I think true. Every, everybody's on the clock and the schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that's really inspiring to me is that each level is its own sandbox. It's designed to be replayed, mm -hmm. but the replay is built into the loops of the game. So basically you beat a mission the first time is you kind of play it pretty straightforward. You sneak in, you take out the target, whatever it is. You maybe try on two or three disguises, whatever. And you get XP for things that you do. You can follow side stories. Yeah. You can discover certain things. You can, thing. you know, yeah, all this stuff like that. They give you hints of like things you can do. Yeah, yeah. And you can't do it all in five or six run-throughs. Like there's way more you can ever do. But the cool thing is you get XP. And so the next time you do it, you might get two or three new options, which is like, oh, now you can start in the kitchen dressed as the cook to save yourself uh, some oh, time. Yeah. And that might help you get a different thing. Oh, and also now you can have them drop you off a gun in the trash can in the hallway so you don't have to sneak it past the frisk anymore. And so the more times you replay it, the more you get advanced in sort of your options that then let you go deeper and deeper. So the, the concept of replaying isn't just like play the same thing a bunch of times just to play it a bunch. Yeah. It is literally the, every level has its own 20 level progression based on XP. So by the time you're playing it for the seventh time and trying to like discover a certain angle or follow a certain story or whatever, you know, you're starting in a powerful disguise with a cool agency drop off and you can smuggle an extra piece of gear in and blah, blah, blah. So the concept of replaying to rediscover is built into the actual loops so that it's not just the same thing every time. Yeah. There's a million other reasons that I love it, but sure, that's nah. probably the biggest one. I like it. I like it. You sold me. He yeah. took a whole fire that son of a bitch back up, man. That's a, oh, so good. Son of a bitch. All right, cool. Just the fact that you can put both two games into the third one. Like it's a platform. Like you can have all yeah. the levels from all the games in the third one. It, if you buy Hitman 3 and buy the add-on packs for the first two, yeah. you have hundreds of hours. That's the coolest shit, so, right? Like we're in this weird space now where everything is a platform now. To me, it's kind of the most sustainable way, right? Like how many times did we mm -hmm. build a project and then throw away everything to build the yeah. second one and rewrite the whole tech yeah. stack from ground up, right? Like that shit's crazy. Hell yeah. And it's not monetized. They're not dinging you for a battle pass mm -hmm. and virtual currency and stuff like that. You buy the game and you get it and that's it. That's as short as I can make my read. No, no, man. You did it. You did it. You delivered <laughs> on it. All right, man. What's the last book you read? I know you're a big reader, big writer, big reader. The last thing that I read that is like, okay enough to admit to is Blacktop Wasteland. That was a cool book. Mm, what's like it about? That. It's about a dude who he's sort of like a, it's kind of a classic tale, like a criminal guy who's out of prison, trying to have a family go straight, came from a kind of a bad situation. Dad was a criminal and people keep trying to pull him in. He keeps trying to stay out and then he, he's trying to do what's right which crosses the line into the illegal, but doing it the right way. Yeah. And it's, it's, I like it because it's, it's set in Virginia. Like I grew up in North Carolina, so it feels a little bit, you get a little bit of that sense. It's S.A. Cosby, who's like a really, really good black author mm. who is kind of revered within the literary circles. So uh, right. yeah, he's, it's, it's really good. Really good. I, I really enjoyed that Sweet. one. So. Great wreck. Yeah. Last question. We have a tradition on the show, Kent. I don't know if you heard any previous episodes, but. If you had a good time talking to me about your journey falling out of the mm -hmm. play area, is is there anyone that you would nominate to fall out of the play area behind mm. you? Right? Anybody with a compelling story, any role models, anybody you work with that you think have a great story to share? Keep it in mind that Ben Rattan nominated you, and so you fell out. Mm -hmm. This might be recency bias, but I would say any of the founders of Brass Lion, like any of those three. Yo. I, I, I'm very happy you I'd tested you all three. I, I'm very happy you said that, right? Because uh, you would be on the hook for for introducing me, man, and 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 inviting That's them fine. and letting them know 
if they'd be willing. Any, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to have any one of them, and be ecstatic to have all three of them. I could even bring yeah, them on they, as as a trio. You know, so oh, you were talking about a five hour episode. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give them each their yeah. own individual shine, man. And it's pretty cool because a lot of the listeners kind of uh, hit me up to be like, "Oh shit, you got another brass line person on there? Sweet, forward to this." So. That's yeah. dope. I appreciate that. I look forward to that, man. That's a great nomination. I consider myself lucky, man. All three of them. God damn. You know, I would have hunted them down individually myself. So <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Appreciate you, bro. Yo, Kent, I had a fucking blast. I I warned you that this was going to happen. And and, and I know. here we are. I didn't think it was going to go this much longer. And we didn't even cover it all, but we covered enough. It, there's there's a lot enough. of meat here, man. There's yeah. a lot of Kent Hudsonisms. There's a lot of great takeaway points. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for taking the time out of your night. Yeah, man. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. It was great to catch up. If you know and love Kent, you appreciate his storytelling abilities. It was extremely simple to just point the mic at him and let him run wild. We touched on it in the interview how he was the youngest creative director I've ever worked under on Criminal. And it's a bit of a shock hearing him say that he wasn't good, that he didn't know what he was doing. But hearing him talk through it and even put myself in his shoes, it makes sense. Being in this role without proper tutelage for sure would be a lot to handle. And to his credit, he did the best he could in a rough situation. Shit. He promoted me to tech designer to give me my first taste of this role. That would set me up for my career. So between him and Rusty Semsrot, I'd say they knew what they were doing. A key takeaway was in discussing how to prioritize yourself and your health and hearing him go through that realization. I'd wager a few of us needed to hear that and perhaps could have benefited from hearing that much earlier in our careers. Myself, personally speaking, over the past handful of years, I transitioned a few jobs. I think one, two, three. I've left three to be precise. And by no means were they as bad as his time at the tail end of two came in, but I had to ask myself those very same questions and was even close to taking it all back and saying, I'm sorry, I'm staying, take me back uh, because of the people, you know, the people you work with, the relationships you build. I'm lucky to say that I've worked with wonderful human beings doing beautifully creative projects that I'm fortunate to be able to go from a sweet gig onto another. I'm doing my best to keep heads down and I don't see it getting better than what I've got going on here, but opportunity continues to come my way with temptation. So all that to say, if you're looking for anything, reach out to me as I've got a bunch of buddies looking for talent right now. How many of you have gone indie or are considering it? I've still got to play the novelist. Did any of his insight resonate with you on structuring contracts and managing your time? On episode 33 of Out of Play Area, we'll sit down with Henry Golding, a principal software engineering lead at Microsoft, where we talk about his journey being an engineer onto his current mission driving automated testing and its importance on what we do in games. That episode debuts in a couple of weeks on June 6th. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. 
please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Cabin crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out-of-play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. Something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real Welcome to the Out of Play Area Let's go.